lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Okay, true confession time. The Christmas tree is still up, but we've made progress. I did what any good mom would do in my situation when you have a huge to-do list and you just cannot get it all done. I enlisted the help of the kids, and out of All four of them, I got one taker, and that was John. And of course, I had to bribe him by telling him that I'd pay him a penny an ornament if he'd take on the challenge. And you know, really, it's it's probably the most suited to either him or Emma because, you know, you kind of got to attend to it. And then I, of course, have a system that I want him to follow. We put certain types of ornaments in certain trays, and then from there, they get boxed up and packaged according to the type of ornament. So I won't bore you with my system, but it's definitely not a project that everyone would enjoy. So it was important to kind of delegate that out. And I have to say that the hardest part of any big project like that is just getting started. So John's gotten me started, and we're super motivated to get it fully completed by Wednesday of next week because we have company coming over. So I have every confidence that this will be the last time you have to hear me talk about that stinking Christmas tree. So how about that? Well, let's get started. This show is a true treasure for me because I've wanted to speak with Pam Pennick for quite a long time, and it finally happened, and it just did not disappoint. It was a thrill from beginning to end. We got to talk a lot about some of my favorite topics uh, related to conserving water, but then also just a lot of tips and tricks around being a smart gardener, and I love that topic. So in any case, let's get going by welcoming new members to our listener community. That's our Facebook group for guests of the show and listeners of the show. And we had a lot of new members join this week. Kelly Armstrong-Smith, Duncan Kerr, Holly Bystron-Spiller, Bob Lutz, Brooke Lewis, Sheila Chilson, Pam Pennick, the guest of today's show, John Lowen, Debbie Gerald Prommel, Deb Rollins, Anne-Marie Altman, Sherry Kump, Dee Diom, Anne Barklow, and Drew Thomason. Welcome, you guys, to the Still Growing Facebook group. You know, this group is really designed to help continue the conversation beyond the podcast. So if you have a guest of the show and you really liked that content and you want to reach out and ask more questions or get different information or just reach out and ask for tips and advice, you can do that because guests of the show are part of that group. You can also share pictures of your garden or ideas that you have that you'd like to see covered in the show. I'm in the group myself and I love to see your pictures and posts. So I encourage you to join that group and be part of the wonderful community that's getting created there. And then also, it's really the only place that I go to pick winners for any of the giveaways that have to do with the podcast. So for instance, this week, after this week's show, Pam will be giving away a personally inscribed copy of her fantastic book, The Water Saving Garden. And the subtitle is How to Grow 
a gorgeous garden with a lot less water. And as you'll hear in our interview, she starts the book out with a tour of seven truly spectacular gardens. And the more you study that content, I think the more inspired you'll be because it is content rich. So I loved going through that with her. I think just that chapter alone is worth getting the book, much less the other chapters, which are all individually great standalone chapters as well. So check that out. But whoever the lucky listener is that wins that copy, Pam will personally inscribe it. If you join the group, you'll be eligible to win that giveaway. You know, the group is also where I curate content for you during the week. I'm always looking at different websites and blogs and all kinds of resources as I research guests for my show and as I'm looking at just staying abreast of some of the great content that's being created out there in the world of horticulture. And as I stumble on those things, I love sharing them in the group. So I've decided I'm going to try to do a top 10 every week of some of the things that made it into the group. It's not a comprehensive list, but it will give you an idea of some of the things that make it into the group and hopefully entice you to want to join the community. So again, if you're interested in joining the community, all you have to do is go to Facebook and then type in the search bar, Still Growing Podcast Group, and then our group will show right up. So think about that as you're getting on Facebook the next time. I'd love to meet you in the group. I'd love to hear about your garden and the challenges that you're facing or celebrate your wins with you this year. So let me go through this top 10 list of things that got put in the group this week. And uh, we'll get started here with a wonderful video that was posted by Color Blends Wholesale Flower Bulbs. And it's showing these wonderful scenes of winter in Holland. Some of the canals are frozen over and they said there's a little bit of snow on the straw that's covering the tulip field. So there's not a ton, but Tulip Van Eyck has rooted and is sleeping till spring. I just loved seeing this video and the scenery in and around Holland in the tulip field. So that I thought was especially enjoyable. Number two was this really fun post on trench composting, which showed how to make a composting trench. It's very simple. You dig a trench and, you know, we define trench loosely here. It doesn't matter what shape the, the trench is in, but approximately 12 inches deep. And then you put compostable materials such as kitchen scraps or garden plants, prunings, that kind of things, and then bury it with the soil that you dug out of the trench. And that is basically it. But how they use the trenches is in between rows, growing rows in the garden. So they work in any vegetable or annual garden where you'd plant fairly regularly spaced rows. And basically, you plant your crops as usual. And then in between this, you have your your trench composting method. So kind of a fun little post, something to try if you're interested in trench composting. Well, I loved the post in the number three spot this week. It is uh, the perfect time to have this post because so many people are getting new house plants. January, February are the big time of year when people like to freshen up their house plants. I know I do the same thing. And this was a post by Summer Rain Oaks. And she's the woman who had her Brooklyn home recently and unexpectedly go viral thanks to house plants. In fact, many many, many, many houseplants because she has over 500 beautiful plants 
all through her five-room space in New York. She basically is living inside a veritable greenhouse. And the pictures are gorgeous and beautiful and inspiring. And of course, she starts out this adorable post on why I filled my New York City apartment with 500 houseplants with this cute little story. And it says this, she goes, my mom wanted me to tell you that you have beautiful plants, my guest said as she walked into my home. And I said, that's wonderful. Tell her thank you. And her guest said, but you don't understand. My mom's like 60 years old. She lives in Thailand and she doesn't even use a computer. I don't know how she found out about this. So that tells you the virility of this post if her friend's 60-year-old mother in Thailand who doesn't use a computer even knew about this apartment. So it's a cute little article. It's very inspiring. If you need to do a houseplant freshen up, this should motivate you. This should totally do the trick. Number four is a great post about sound waves and how they can give tropical trees a checkup. And so this was shared in Seeker.com back on the 7th of January. And it says the whole premise of this article is that by measuring how fast sound is traveling through the trunk of a tree can reveal whether or not it's rotting from the inside fascinating article. I know I've shared a few articles in the past couple of months that are kind of related to trees and technology and how they're using, whether it's drones or radar from helicopters to determine tree height or tree health. This is yet another article along those lines and how we're using technology to take care of our trees. There was a really great interesting product that made it into the fifth spot. And it's a row garden cloche. That's a mini greenhouse that can protect plants from harsh weather and pests. And this was in uniquehunter.com. And the row cover, I absolutely love this cloche because it's very well done. It's very tasteful. They clip together and It just looks really nice. So it's called the Row Garden Cloche. It's a really great gardening aid, and I think it looks really wonderful. It's got built-in venting, looks like high quality in the way that it's constructed, and it just it really looks nice. So give that a go if you're looking for something interesting in terms of row cover or cloche material for your garden this year. In the Telegraph, under their lifestyle gardening section in the number six spot, there were actually a couple of posts that I put together. One was a post on the very best potatoes, and these were shared by a man with 500 to choose from. So that was a great post. Gardenista shared a a 101 post, kind of an intro post to pole beans. That was by Laura Boyle. And I love pole beans. And I thought this article was very well done. And then finally, Lori Neverman of the blog Common Sense Homesteading did a really nice post on planting sunchokes or Jerusalem artichokes. And it's a cautionary tale because they're known to be thugs in the garden and Jerusalem artichoke can certainly be thugs. In fact, uh, Lori was showing this picture of a bed that I think her and like four other people had gone through 
and there were still sunchokes coming up in this garden. So check that out. If you did this by accident last year, you're going to want to pay attention to that article, I have a feeling. And the seventh spot is this adorable garden tip that was shared by a thrifty mom, Sarah, a thrifty mom, on her website. I think I found it through Pinterest. But it's a great image. It's a quick garden tip. And it is to use a muffin pan basically as a dibber. So you take a muffin pan to, and you use it. You press it into the soil to create perfectly spaced holes to plant your garden seeds and plant. So this is from a thriftymom.com. And I love this idea for gardening with kids because it helps them really lay out the garden and see the spacing in a very visual, concrete way. So check that post out. Very worthwhile, very cute. If you do anything with schoolyard gardens, this would be a great resource to bring. You can certainly stop by Goodwill or a thrift store and get a muffin pan. Hers looks like a more substantially sized muffin tin. Uh, it must be one of those mini muffin tins because let me see here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's like an eight by four or something like that. So, you know, you can get them in all different sizes. So if you have, you know, a bigger muffin tin, you could use that for plants that need to be further apart. And then the little mini muffin tin for things that can be closer together. So give that a go. I thought it looked really great. I tell you what, speaking of great, in the number eight spot in the Telegraph was this really wonderful article. And it was all about this gentleman named Mark Edwards. And it's his pruning regime for roses. It was fascinating. The first step I'm going to share with you because I thought it was fantastic is they clip away all the leaves. So you're only left with the stems. Some of the older growth is also removed at this stage. They take all the leaves off to keep the roses disease free because most roses get the diseases overwinter on foliage. And so as a result, these roses never get sprayed. They get mulched and fed with blood, fishbone, and garden compost that keeps the plants strong. And then the new growth, which is shiny to look at, is tied in with garden twine. And then over the walls, the pliable stems of the roses are bent into circles and ovals and the idea is to slow down the flow of sap so that more flower buds are produced. And the article goes on and on and on. But as you can tell, this is a very unique approach to pruning roses. And I found it to be very fascinating. In the number nine spot were two gardens that were pretty unique, pretty special. The first is an urban garden that was the pride of the street. It was a true backyard beauty. It had been landscaped to the nines very thoughtfully. And I, I just absolutely loved this garden. If you have a small space and you want to create something really special, this garden would be a great inspiration for you. And then there is a fabulous Florida garden oasis that was featured in Garden and Gun, and it's an orangery. There's an orangery, there's all kinds of citrus being grown, and it's very tastefully done. And it incorporated some of the more unusual paving that Pam and I talk about in today's interview. So 
give that a look. I thought it was very worthwhile. In the final spot, in the number 10 spot, are two rooftop gardens that I thought were tremendous. The first is from urban agricultural pioneer Lufa Farms. They just opened their third rooftop greenhouse farm. They're located in Montreal, and this is a husband and wife couple that are doing an amazing job. In fact, all of their produce is grown hydroponically through a system of plastic tubing that feeds them, recycles the water, and then reuses it. The circulation system and the microclimate are managed by computer software. In fact, there's a TEDx talk that they did at the University of Montreal in 2012 that begins to talk about this operation that they were creating even back then. It's pretty fascinating because they are doing all kinds of things to get food to table very quickly in Montreal, and they've got this whole operation down to a science. So the the site, the greenhouse contains this wonderful warehouse where subscribers' baskets are assembled with the fresh produce that they want. And they call their customers loofavores, which I absolutely think is fantastic. Fantastic. So this is a great article, very inspirational, wonderful use of a rooftop garden. And then there's another incredible rooftop farm that has taken over Israel's oldest mall, and they are growing thousands of organic vegetables. So very similar story to what's happening in Montreal and extremely inspiring. In terms of recipes this week, there is a skillet roasted winter vegetable recipe that was shared, a roasted cauliflower and chickpea taco that looks absolutely amazing. And that recipe is from Two Peas in Their Pod, the family of Maria and Josh and they do a great job on their website if you're interested in that. And Ernest Hemingway had a cocktail recipe for days when you've had just enough of the world. And I loved the recipe. It was called, what did he call it? It was something kind of different. Oh, Death in the Gulf Stream was the name of this drink. And it actually looks pretty cute. It's it's a very pretty looking pink almost like a lemonade type drink is what it looks like. And they said that the drink was included in a book of cocktail recipes. The head bartender of the Ritz Hotel in Paris had put this recipe in there and it was from Ernest Hemingway. So that's another really fun little thing that made it into the group this week. Well, I am absolutely thrilled to have Pam Pennick on the show today talking about her wonderful book, The Water-Saving Garden. That's her latest book. She also is the author of the book, Lawn Gone! Exclamation mark. So if you're looking to have a smarter garden this year for 2017, if conserving water or just being smarter about how you keep your plants hydrated or maybe the way that you've been taking care of your plants and you're looking for something that's more long-term, this is a great book, a great resource for you. Pam has been blogging since 2006, so she's, I call her, garden blogging royalty. And not only that, she was the brains behind the Garden Bloggers fling. It was her idea to get garden bloggers together uh, almost 10 years ago now. Next year will be the 10th anniversary. And 
as someone who was brand new to the Garden Bloggers Fling this past summer. I think it is an amazing experience that's just kind of taken on a life of its own. Pam's still involved with it, and you'll hear her talk a little bit about it in the introduction here as well. But I think it's a wonderful legacy for Pam and all the great work she's done in the field of horticulture. She's a writer. She loves to write. And you can check out all of her wonderful content on her blog at pennick.net. Just type in Pam Pennick Digging. That's the name of her blog, Digging, D-I-G-G-I-N-G. Now for today's show, we do a deep dive on her book, The Water Saving Garden. I loved going through this book in depth with Pam. She's a practical gardener and she wants you to enjoy your garden, to have fun and to see the beauty and appreciate it. So you're going to have a blast listening to Pam. Well, hi there, Pam. Hi, Jennifer. How are you doing? I'm great. And I have to say, I'm so thrilled to get the chance to speak with you. And we're going to be talking about how to grow a gorgeous garden with a lot less water, courtesy of your new book, The Water Saving Garden. But before we do that, let's give folks an overview of all of the great work that you've done in the field of gardening. I had just posted in my Facebook group for the show right before we got on that I was speaking with Garden Blogger Royalty. You've been blogging (laughs) since 2006. You're involved in so many activities. And of course, in the garden community, you're very beloved because you were the founding person for the Garden Bloggers Fling, the annual get-together for garden bloggers, and you do a significant amount of writing for gardening. Well, thanks. I, gosh, I'm kind of blushing here. Um, <laughs> I don't know about the royalty part, but I've, I've been around for a while, but I'm not the oldest garden blogger. There are garden bloggers out there who've been doing it longer than I have, um, and I, I hope you get a chance to interview them, them too. Um, I've been doing it for, it'll be 11 years next, next month, wow. which I can hardly believe. So yeah, 10-year anniversary last year, 11 years next month. Um, and it you know, it's still it still feels as fresh as it did the first year. It's it's something I really love to do. I love to share my garden and other gardens that I visit. So it just I really have enjoyed it a lot, and it's led to some great friendships and opportunities, including the Garden Blogger Sling, like you mentioned. And you know, it's funny about um, starting the Garden Blogger Sling. That was really just an invitation to come have a party with us. <laughs> <laughs> that was. That was about the Austin Garden Bloggers when garden blogging was still fairly new in Austin in 2007. We had just started getting together here in, in Austin face-to-face, and that felt very daring at the time. And um, we decided to there – were, there was a group of four of us, actually, who decided to have anybody who was blogging anywhere come and join us. And we were so surprised when people did. We were thrilled and surprised, and we had 37 people that first year and um, garden bloggers from all over the country. And it's just morphed into an annual event that is now between like 75 and 100 bloggers every year in a different city each year, hosted by garden bloggers. So that's a really great event. Hmm. And there's always a strong contingent of bloggers from Austin, Texas at these flings, right? All over the country. There are, yeah. We are just just bloggers. Uh, I I don't know why there are so many bloggers I have wondered that out loud many a time myself. Um, we have about 20 pretty regular bloggers on our on a private Facebook page from Austin. And I would say about six or eight of us go every year to the fling, and then there are other 
Texas bloggers also who go to the fling every year. So it's a pretty big Texas contingent. Yes, it is. And I challenge any other state to match us in numbers. I would love to see that happen. (laughs) Well, everything's bigger in Texas, Pam. Come on. I guess so. (laughs) Well, I have to ask, since you mentioned, who were the original four? The original four are Diana Kirby, who blogs at Sherry Nature's Garden, and she is she is still a regular flinger. I don't think she's missed a one either. She and I have not missed a single fling. Wow. For the, uh, this is going to be 10 years coming up this year in D.C., hmm. and I know you interviewed Tammy, the planner of that one recently. Yep. Um, Bonnie Martin, Kiss of Sun, and um, M. Sinclair Stevens of Zandon Gardens, who was one of the bloggers, the earliest bloggers in Austin, who actually inspired me to start blogging. She oh, really? was one of the planners, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so those four and, um, it, and, and plenty of other helpers here in Austin um, helped us get that fling off the ground. And, mm. um, yeah, it was just it was a surprising and really, really fun event to have. Well, tell us a little bit about your life in Austin, Texas. I know you're married. I know that you're in Zone 8B and that you write a lot. You write an awful lot. So what's a typical day look like for you and what's your life all about right now? Well, uh, as you mentioned, I'm married. I'm my husband, David. I've got two kids, um, my son, Aaron, daughter, Julia. Um, he's working and she is in high school. Got a dog named Cosmo, who is at the other end of the house, hopefully not barking right now. So I, I work from home. I, for many years in Austin, I was a designer, met with clients all over town um, to talk about what we could do for their yard, whether it was coaching or um, creating a plan for them that they could then incorporate on their own. And that, those years, I did design work for about eight years. That really gave me the foundation for the books that I later wrote, because I got to see what people were struggling with, um, the kinds of challenges they faced, especially in our region here in Austin, which deals a lot with extreme weather, drought especially, and really hot summers. That was a great time to kind of get my gardening chops figured out. I had been gardening on my own for several years. I've had three houses where I've created gardens. Oh, wow. This is my third house, and really kind of different conditions with each one. Hmm. So... That was also a great learning experience. And I've um, been in the current house for, I think this is our eighth year, and um, now gardening in a lot of shade and with deer and um, kind of a rocky soil. And Austin has two different kinds of soil, depending on what part of town you live in. It's either deep clay or it's this rocky caliche and with very little real soil that you can plant in on top. And so... Depending on what part of town you're in, it kind of affects the kind of plants you can grow. And I've had the experience of gardening on both sides of town, which is which has been pretty eye-opening. Mm-hmm. So lots of challenges in gardening here, but also really fun. There's lots of different um, plants that we can grow from different regions. We've got the prairie influence. Um, we can grow plants from northern Mexico, and we can grow plants from the hill country, which has its own unique look. It's a very popular tourist destination and it has a really beautiful kind of dry rolling landscape and then we can also grow plants from the deep south so those have varying degrees of success depending on the weather in any given year and depending on the part of town you live in but what it means is that you can pick and choose from those to create some pretty unique gardens Hmm. now you mentioned something i hadn't heard of before caliche what is that Mm 
it's kind of a crumbly limestone. Um, it underlays the thin layer of soil on the west side of town. So as you move from east to west in Austin, you move into the hills. And the hills roll out into the hill country to the west. And it gets a lot more arid out that way. And the caliche is, is just, it's, you know, this used to be a shallow sea billions of years ago or however many, <laughs> however many <laughs> millennia ago it was. And the limestone, of course, is, you know, it's full of sea creatures. So when you dig it up, you can often find fossils. The caliche oh, wow. is just a, the crumbly, unplantable, rocky kind of, um, white soil, if you can call it that. It's not really soil. It's more like a, it's in between like a rock and the soil. And it, you usually have to break it up with a breaker bar if you have a lot of caliche to get anything into the soil or, you know, mound up soil to make um, raised beds. So it's a challenging, it's a challenging kind of soil when you have it. But if you can learn to garden in the crevices and plant really small plants instead of large ones and go with the native plants that prefer that kind of soil, which is very alkaline, then you can get that hill country look, which wow. is really beautiful. It sounds like if I lived down there, I would be hiring high school students to help me because it sounds backbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> it can be very challenging, but um, but it's but it you know the, the real challenge is just learning what kind of plants thrive here, and learning what the weather does, and you know once you accept the conditions that you have, no matter where you live, because yeah. everybody has challenges. Once you accept those conditions, then you can start gardening confidently and with more success because you, you, you're not throwing money away on plants and materials that just won't make it. Yeah. Yep. Very true. Because it doesn't matter where you're at. You want to be a smart gardener. And it'd be great if you so. can learn some of those lessons the easy way by listening to the experts instead of <laughs> trial and error. <laughs> I think there's some trial and error involved in any of them. And, and honestly, that's half the fun. I don't want to discourage anybody from, from going wild and trying something crazy because I've done my share of that and still do. But, um, but you know, you also don't want to just blow your budget. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, when I think about the people who hired me as a designer, they were not all gardeners. A lot of them were people who just wanted a pretty landscape. Mm. And they wanted to know how to do that. They didn't have the first idea. They didn't know what kind of plants. Um, and, you know, that's where you can really, I think we who do like to garden can really help people because we all want to make our communities more beautiful and more sustainable. And so even if you're talking to people who aren't going to be out there every weekend like we are, clipping and, you know, fussing over our gardens, we can still make a difference for those people too. Hmm. Well, I think that's the perfect segue into kind of setting the stage for our talk today. And I thought it would be great to establish kind of a foundational mindset for our conversation, because your book is an appeal to gardeners everywhere to honor water. Your introduction starts out simply with the fact that we take water for granted in America, and other developed countries do as well. We're not alone in that. But I thought your opening paragraph was a perfect way to start our talk. So why don't you read it for us? And then I'd love to okay. hear your thoughts on water. Okay, let's do it. This is my first book reading. Okay, um, here, here's how it starts. Water is easy to take for granted in our country. Gushing from the faucet at the touch of a lever or twist of the knob, the most precious resource in the world, clean drinking water, gurgles into our homes like magic. Our great-grandparents may have hand-pumped a well, and their ancestors lugged buckets of water from the river. 
But we're so accustomed to the convenience and availability of fresh water that we design our homes and grade our property to shed water and then pay to pipe it back in and spray it across our yards when rainfall is scarce and often even when it isn't. With a heedlessness born of cheap, plentiful water, a supply many regions can no longer count on, we run our sprinklers automatically and excessively, carpet our yards with thirsty lawn without regard to climate, and let rainwater and irrigation run off our yards and driveways into the street. This is madness. We must stop treating water as a disposable commodity in our landscapes and gardens and conserve it like the precious, limited resource it is. And that's, that's really the gist of it. I mean, I don't... You know, I don't think of my book as a preachy kind of book. So that's probably the preachiest moment <laughs> in the book. For me, gardening is about beauty and fun. And that's what I want to convey to people with, with the book, um, while still getting across the message that the old way of gardening, where people just kind of planted what they wanted um, without thinking about the consequences to the environment, I think that model is is going out. I think it's largely going out mm-hmm. um, in many parts of the country where um, water shortages are a big deal. And that's not just limited to the Southwest or the West anymore. Lots of areas have droughts, and climate change is, is causing changes in the kind of weather events that we have everywhere. You know, there's more severe weather. So whatever kind of weather you have, we all, I think, want to do our part in making our gardens and our landscapes more sustainable because we are all more attuned to the fact that what we do matters on an individual level in each yard. It matters for the greater community and the, and the, and the larger environment. Mm. And so that's the preachy bit. But what I really sh- try to show in the book is that little things that you do can make a difference. And they don't all have to be very hard or expensive. Some of them can be. But some of them can be very simple, and it's kind of a, a mindset change. And so what I was hoping to show was if you're looking at ways to garden more sustainably, look at your water use and incorporate some of these things that can reduce your water use while still having a beautiful garden. And if you are blessed to live in a region where you have tons of water and adequate rainfall, you still may want to think about ways to be water thrifty because in those areas you can really have – a lot of pollutants washing into the waterways. And if you can figure out ways to hold the water that you get, the rainfall, on your property, instead of having it wash out to the storm drains, then you can also make a difference in the water quality of your region. Mm. I like that. You know, my husband was at uh, Harvard a couple of years ago going through a program, and every night I'd call him and say, okay, tell me everything you learned at Harvard, because... I'm here at home with four kids, and I would love to know what you're learning. And right? <laughs> yeah, and one time they had a gentleman who had served on the Joint Chief staff, and he came in and talked to them about the top 20 threats that they considered for the United States. And one of them was water, that they were concerned that over time, water would become the most precious commodity that countries would fight over as opposed to, you know, oil, what we think of today as as even more precious than water, a lot of people would say. But um, that was the prediction for the future because of water scarcity. And I found that Mm -hmm. so fascinating. But it also kind of echoes what you're saying in the sense that at some point, there's the potential that we all face scarcity with water. So learning how to be more respectful and 
conservative with how we use water on our properties can only be a benefit because drought can come to anyone's door. It can, and it can be an awful shock, let me tell you, because, you know, Texas has gone through some really terrible, a really terrible drought um, that broke, I think it was two years ago, um, that was a multi-year drought, and it was painful. As a gardener, as, as someone who just loves the beauty of the region that you live in, and I hope that everyone does, you know, everyone listening to this um, is attuned to the beauty of where they live, um, it's painful to watch trees die, you know, 100-year-old trees just mm. um, die from lack of water. When the trees started, it's funny because when I moved to Texas um, back in 19, uh, gosh, when was it, 1994, um, my husband's grandparents were still living, and my grandmother-in-law told me about a time when drought came to Texas in the 50s. And she said, I remember just the stark way she said it. She said, it was so bad, even the trees died. And I just, I couldn't even imagine that, you know, that a drought could be so bad that the trees would die. And then I witnessed that myself a few years ago. Um, you could drive out through the hill country or just in portions of, of Austin, and you could see where the trees had died. So, yeah, that can happen anywhere. And, um, you know, maybe the drought wouldn't be what we're talking about, like what we see in California or Texas in your area, in, in Minnesota. But it would just whatever is less than what the plants are accustomed to getting. That's a drought. So if your plants can't adapt to that, um, that's when you start to see major plant loss. And whether that's in your garden that you've lovingly tended for years and years or in the greater landscape, it's very painful to watch. So there's nothing we can do about, um, you know, seeing trees die in the greater landscape when drought comes. But we can impact um, our gardens and how they respond to drought and we can plant plants that are more resilient in that way. And we can also design our yards in ways that help harness rainwater instead of just, you know, sending it out to the street. Well, there is a phrase that you use about how gardens utilize water in a water-saving garden. It's in a few places in your book, and I admired the clear image that it created in my mind's eye. You wrote, this book will show you that a water-saving garden can be so much more than just cacti or succulents, although certainly those can be beautiful too. So another great reference to the beauty piece in the garden. A garden that sips instead of guzzles can be quite lush if planted with regionally appropriate plants. So these types of gardens, the sippers, not the guzzlers, these are really the ones you bring home to meet your mother. So how is it that a water-saving garden translates so beautifully into a garden with stain power? Well, I love that image about that you just said about these being the gardens that you want to bring home to meet your mother. And, and by that, I assume you mean that they're the ones that you really want to live with yes. um, long-term. But they can be sexy, too. And that's part of what I'm trying to show with the book is that, you know, it doesn't have to be a sacrifice to have this kind of a garden. A lot of people think, oh, I've got to give up this, and I've got to give up that, and I can't grow my favorite plants. And I just I really want to convey that you can still have this beautiful garden. It can be lush in a different way. Yes, bring these gardens home to meet your mother and also know that they can be really fun and something that you'll love just as much. Um, but speaking to the point about how do these gardens have staying power, um, it mainly comes down to um, the way you design your yard to hold water and the plant choices that you make. And 
you, you know, starting with the plant choice, because that's what most of us who love the garden are thinking about the most, you're choosing plants that are either native to your area or that are well adapted to your area. And that means that when you have these extremes of weather, less rainfall, more heat, that sort of thing, they can roll with the punches. And so you don't lose these plants. You don't have to be out there pouring extra water on. And in regions like mine, you know, you get a bad drought. You can't even use the extra water. You have watering restrictions. Hmm. And that's happened in many parts of the country. So in that case, you just have to stand by and kind of, you know, watch your plants shrivel up. So, um, yeah, it's just a way of thinking about choosing plants more carefully and then designing your yard to hold on to that water when it does come. And that's what the book is all about. Yeah, and I liked there was a, a section there where you were talking about how the enormous energy that we have to put into these plants that or into the plants that do guzzle water because there's mm-hmm. they require a lot of time and attention. And with this type of garden, with this water saving garden, you are eliminating the fatigue factor that comes with all of the maintenance, all of the watering, and and probably replacing a lot of loss over time. So I think seasoned gardeners especially are very drawn to a water-saving garden because they know how much work is goes into re- taking care of plants that require so much time and attention. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to make any false promises that, that any kind of garden you have won't require time and energy. It does. You know, it, it, everything requires maintenance. But the idea is that if you have a garden that is more sustainable, in, you know, in the deep sense of this garden is appropriate for where you live and, um, and it doesn't require as many huge inputs of watering, fertilizing, pesticides, because the plants are built in, you know, to their genes to survive in these areas. Or they're just so well adapted. You know, I'm not a native plant purist. Um, I do strongly believe in using native plants, but I also believe in, in using plants that are, um, you know, so long as they're not invasive, that, that grow well in a, in a given region. And um, that usually gives you a lot more choices. So if you are somebody who likes to play with plants and, you know, have something unusual or try something new, that still gives you a big palette to choose from in most areas. And um, because I, 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 you know, I think the reason we garden, well, there's many reasons we garden. Some people garden because they want to um, create wildlife habitat, and that's a worthy goal. And some people garden because they love beautiful flowers, and that's a worthy goal. So to me, it's not about no, 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 you can't do this, but it's about how can we do what we love in a way that's not wasteful of this resource. I like that. Well, there are five parts to your book. And of course, part one of your book would start with a tour of seven inspiring water-saving gardens. And I say, of course, because you started the fling, and that is largely centered around touring gardens. So your book starts Mm -hmm. in the same way. And this section was really (laughs) a thrill for me because... I love touring gardens. It's very, you know, energizing for me. There's so many ideas. And that's instantly what happened as I was going through the pages of these different gardens. So I thought it would be fun if we chatted about some of the truly innovative and thoughtful highlights from each of these gardens. And the first one you called A Dry Garden Journey to a Courtyard Oasis. And this is Lakewood Garden in Austin, Texas. What are your thoughts when mm-hmm. when you think about this garden? 
this garden really blew me away when I saw the Google image, the Google Maps image that I dug up online of what it looked like before. Um, Kurt Arnett, a landscape architect in Austin, designed this garden. When he was first approached by the owners, they have this, they're, they're on a corner lot in a, in a neighborhood on the west side of town. They had a gigantic um, corner lot, which was just, it looked like just St. Augustine Lawn. That's the predominant lawn around here. And, um, you know, it looked kind of bleached out from the sun, and there was hardly any shade on it. There were a few straggly trees. And um, it was just kind of a, to me, it looked kind of, you know, just bleak um, from that image. And what they wanted was something that would give them some privacy and some color and some beauty without requiring a lot of water for a very, for a very large corner lot. And so he, what he designed took out all that lawn, and replaced it with this really textural dry garden that, when I visited in the fall, was blooming with these fall grasses, the Gulf muleys, and there were some large um, yuccas and um, feathery trees. These were all really drought-hardy, um, largely native plants, and ground covers filling in around that. There was a gravel mulch around the plants because these are dry-loving plants, and gravel mulch helps keep them from rotting. That, and the gravel mulch segued into pathways, so it was kind of a strolling garden. Like you could stroll through um, these curved paths, and there were berms that elevated some of the plants, so he gave a little height and texture to this space and just made it, you know, like someplace you wanted to explore. So going through that, you get to the front of the house, and that's enclosed to keep out the deer. It's got a steel mesh fence around it, a very contemporary-looking fence. And a water feature outside that fence um, runs through a trough that, that goes through the fence and into the courtyard inside. So it kind of leads you in, leads the eye, and then leads you in. And inside is a gravel courtyard with a large fish pond in the center that kind of anchors the space. And it's surrounded by more really beautiful dry-loving plants. And um, it's just a remarkably beautiful garden to stroll through and uses so much less water than a lawn would and gives you so much more. And it just feels very open and interesting, and you can't see it all at once, you know, so that appeals to the gardener and all of us because it gives you places to explore. So, yeah, it's just a really stunning garden. Hmm. Well, the images from this garden, my, my three highlights were um, I put a big heart around the first picture with the beautiful pink feathery. I don't even know what they are because they're southern That's plants. Gold grass, yeah. Oh my gosh, it was adorable. And then I put heart spiky plants because I know you love the spiky plants. So I thought, oh my gosh, I bet Pam's <laughs> heart was just beating a mile a minute when she saw oh, the, yeah. the spiky plants. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and then uh, you use this phrase in the caption for uh, this one picture, and you said, gravelly berms. And I thought, oh, that's such a great idea for people who are thinking about berms as if they have to go in and add all the soil. You don't. Mm -hmm. You can just do a berm completely out of this new material that you bring bring into the property. So I love the idea of just a gravel berm. Um, And and by that, for our region, what that means is uh, a soil that drains really well mixed in with a lot of gravel, you know, so oh, okay. it, there is soil under there because oh, there you, you do need to you need to plant in the soil. Yeah, but but you're right. There's a lot of gravel mixed in. We use a material here in Austin called decomposed granite, mm. which is a really crushed um, kind of granite, and that works well mixing in with soils to help with drainage and that sort of thing. So those gravelly berms in this garden do two things. They give 
um, some height interest to what was otherwise just a flat as a pancake space. And so now there are these, um, you know, these raised areas that are planted that the paths circle through. And so you, you can't see it all at once. It adds height. It adds um, interest to the space. And also for plants that are really dry loving, it gives them a little, um, you know, extra drainage that they need if we do get flooding rains. And Texas gets both. You know, we have long periods of drought, and then we also get these just absolute gully washers. We're in what's called flash flood alley uh, because we do have a lot of hills and stuff. When, when the rains come down, they come down like several inches at a time, and then things can, things can flood very easily here. So mm-hmm. that, that helps this kind of garden a lot wow. with the drainage. Well, and the very last thing that struck me was what you mentioned, which was this: they have this gorgeous fish pond, but then leading to it is this trough. And then to give people an idea, imagine a, a retaining wall that's about three feet high is what it looks like. And instead of just having the top of the retaining wall be a ledge, they turned it into a trough. And it looks like it's about 20 feet long. And it must have a slope because the whole top of this, this um, what do you call it, wall, this little wall, mm-hmm. is basically feeding the water slowly to the the fish pond. Now, is that yep. recycling through there, or is it just the illusion that it, there would be water falling from it if, for instance, it was raining? I'm pretty sure it's cycling through there. So it starts outside the uh, courtyard fence with a small rectangular pool that's elevated. And then it's elevated at the same height as that wall that you talked about. And then okay. down the center of that wall, there's a channel. Yes. So, uh, you know, people, most people are familiar with, with rills, the very straight line rills that are used in, um, you know, like Islamic courtyard gardens. That's what it looks like, only it's on the top of this wall. Yeah. And the wall is made of um, board-formed concrete, so it has a very contemporary look. Mm. And then that water that runs through the trough spills into that fish pond and then recirculates back through. Yeah, yeah it's, it's just an ingenious design to, I, to lead you into that courtyard. I agree. I thought, oh my gosh, country gardens or somebody should do an entire spread just on this garden alone because I think that's, right? that those images are super inspiring. So you kind of have to, when you get books like this, you really have to take a moment and look at what you're seeing because it's subtle details like this in the imagery that that um, can really spark your imagination and your creativity for what you can do in your own garden. But I love things that yeah. do double duty, like that wall. It's not only a wall, it's carrying water. It's, ugh, it's genius. It's genius. Yeah, and it's pointing the way to the house. You know, it's a, it's a design feature, too, that, that leads you from that kind of expansive outer garden um, through this courtyard space uh, toward the house. It's, po- it's pointing right at the house. Yeah, so you're it, right. it leads the eye there. Yeah, yeah. you're right. It has, it's doing a lot of different things. It, it is. It is. Well, <laughs> well, garden number two, you called Zen Inspiration for a Concrete Jungle. This is the garden of Ted and Nancy Dobson, and it's in Eugene, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rebecca Sands and Buell Stillman of Mosaic Gardens um, in Eugene designed this one. And uh, I'm just really struck by how they solved some serious drainage problems in this garden. Um, and they've described it on their own website, too. If you go check it out, you can see even more pictures of it on the Mosaic Gardens website. Um, this garden is a small space. It's, it's um, at the bottom of a slope, so their neighbors are uphill. There's a retaining wall in the backyard. And then a ton of water, when it rained, would just come down from the uphill area and flow through their property. And previous owners had pretty much paved the whole yard to help solve the drainage problem. 
and basically they paved it to keep it out of the house and funneled it off um, toward the street. And the challenge in this one was that couldn't be removed. And so the designers had to deal with how do you slow the water down without impeding it and still create a beautiful garden. So this is, again, this is a water management um, issue, basically, which is appropriate. So And it can be looked at different ways. So like I, I try to take these examples for people as uh, maybe you don't have these exact conditions, but what if you, you know, have a have a small dry space, you want water to percolate through to the ground, then you could do a, a garden like this, which has a lot of gravel paving and stepping stones that lead through it so that water could do its thing. Um, and then you would have minimal plants in pots, and those could have um, a drip irrigation system coming over to them so that you don't have to just spray the whole yard. You know, so that's one example of what it can do. For these particular owners, what it did was it slowed down that water that they had while still allowing them to have this beautiful garden. So it looks like a Japanese Zen garden. There's gravel flooring with stepping stones um, walking through the space, like kind of floating on top of the gravel. There's a deck that floats above the gravel, and this is all very low, so you don't need a railing. And um, some bamboo fencing and a, a, a fountain, focal point fountain, fountain and some uh, just uh, really not very many potted plants in the Japanese style that give this ambiance and help deal with the water and the drainage issue while not adding to the overwatering of that area. So I just thought it was a really great example, really creative um, in the way they approached it. And also it's a great example for people, no matter you know what their own water conditions, this is something that you could, you could emulate as a dry garden model. Hmm. I was so struck by the fact that they had this idea um, of not ripping out all of that concrete. You mm-hmm. know, so many people would have come into a, a property that had tons of concrete on it and thought, oh, my gosh, we're going to have to go in and rip this all out. And they didn't mm-hmm. do that. They just said, you know what, we're just going to go right over the top of it. And they yep. put all this river rock and which kind of gives that illusion of water that I know we're going to be talking about. But it the does. whole mm-hmm. base, the whole foundation is literally just covered with this river rock. And then I love what you what you mentioned with the decking. Everything's so low, but it's hovering over the river rock. And even mm-hmm. when they put the stepping stones in, see, this is the difference between a designer and then just a regular person like myself. I would have taken the stepping stones and, of course, wanted them to be level so that with mm-hmm. the gravel so that the kids weren't tripping. But what they did is they elevate those stones. It's almost like they just nestle them just ever so slightly into the gravel. And then again, it reinforces that illusion of water because you feel like if you're stepping on those elevated stones that you're somehow not kind of falling into the water, if you will. And it just really yeah. reinforces that entire illusion. And th- those were my two favorite standout things. And I said, <laughs> I have arrow up aesthetic and arrow down runoff. I thought it was <laughs> just gorgeous. Oh my gosh, I yeah, love this. Well, Rebecca and Buell are really artists as far as their design work goes. And I, I think they're really drawing on the Japanese Zen Garden aesthetic here. Um, if you've ever visited one, you know, the Zen Garden uses gravel to represent water, mm-hmm. and it's often raked into ripple-like patterns, and they'll place um, large boulders in the gravel to represent islands uh, with the gravel rippling around it. So it really creates this illusion, even though it's completely dry materials. 
of um, of water. And and you're exactly right. These these paving stones, they're they're irregular, flat, looks like limestone or granite stepping stones. Um, winds through that and. Um, it's a path that's not meant to be zipped along to get to your destination. Mm. In the Zen garden tradition, it's meant to be, you know, explored very slowly, taking a long look at your surroundings. It's meant to slow you down, yeah. and it's meant to help you see the garden. Mm. And uh, I think it does it beautifully. And you're right, it's, it was a big challenge that they had to leave that concrete there, and it's. I think it's just a really smart solution mm. they, that they hit on, and a very artistically beautiful one. Mm-hmm. Well, every woman knows the thrill of having a design challenge like that where you feel like you've really hit a roadblock and then you come with uh, come up with some ingenious solution <laughs> and you're laughing all the way to the bank, right? Because you didn't have to do all the labor or the cost of getting that concrete out of there. I just thought, oh my gosh, this is genius. Right. And I loved what right. you were saying about the path slowing you down. I was thinking about my kids at basketball. They're getting this uh, training from Coach Ben and He's trying to help them eliminate the stutter in their step because if they're stuttering, it's a sign they're not confident as a basketball player in this move that they're trying to do. And I was thinking, oh, man, so in basketball, we're trying to eliminate the stutter. In a Zen garden, we really encourage a stutter step. We want that path to make you kind of you know, watch where you're stepping and and take a Mm -hmm. moment and maybe not have that just a regular stride where we're going to zip through and, and, you know, go grab that garden tool we forgot in the back. We've got to take our time here or we're going to fall into the river. (laughs) I like it too. (laughs) Yeah, you got to watch your step. (laughs) Watch your step. That's right. Well, uh, garden number three, uh, you said embracing the desert for outdoor living. This is Quartz Mountain Garden, Paradise Valley, Arizona. And I underlined something you said uh, in the first sentence. You said, desert dwellers in the Southwest often planted in denial of the desert. And I'm like, oh, I love that sentence. Because so often we want to just completely live in denial as far as where we're living and the conditions we have to face. It's like, ugh. It takes so long sometimes for people to just accept reality, live in the truth of where they're gardening. Yeah, and sometimes that's not even, um, you know, it's not even an intentional decision. Mm-hmm. This is a largely, I think, a retirement area where people have moved here from other places, and it's just a neighborhood full of beautiful, beautiful homes. But these people maybe are here from more temperate climates, and um, Steve Martino is the landscape architect for this garden, and he's been working there for decades on changing the aesthetic of this region through his garden designs. Um, When he first started designing there, well, before he even had his own business, he told me he was working for another um, uh, design firm, and they were ripping out, as they moved into these these new yards, they were ripping out the native landscaping and replacing it with this kind of Mediterranean aesthetic. You know, there's a lot of palm trees and big grass lawns and plants like that, very showy kind of Mediterranean plants. And he's like, you know, why are we, you know, he had grown up in this area, and he's like, why are we ripping out these plants that are, you know, they grow here naturally and they look great. And the designer said, oh, those are just weeds. And so he's kind of taken that to heart, and he says that what he plants are weeds and walls. And he's saying that jokingly because, of course, these are not weeds. These are beautiful native plants. 
and he's really championed their use for decades in the Phoenix area. And this is just a great example of, of, of that style and that aesthetic. And it's, it's not all or nothing. Uh, you know, as you can see in the pictures, um, the owners wanted a play lawn for their kids, and there is room for one, but it's just reduced. It's not taking up the whole property mm-hmm. as it might have with a different aesthetic or different designer. Um, it's, it's a smaller area, and it's just for the play space. And then the rest of the garden is given over to these, you know, really dramatic um, vignettes of sculptural native plants like ocotillo and prickly pear uh, that are really well suited to their, what do they get, like eight inches of rain in Arizona? Mm-hmm. Um, it's hardly any rain at all. But these plants thrive on that, and they're beautiful. And he shows them off against these richly colored stucco walls, uh, which give privacy, and they shelter from the wind, and they, you know, they have all these other um, functional features, too, but they also are turned into this kind of work of art, this frame for these plants that have so much drama. Um, so it's really striking to see this garden and to see what he's done to embrace the desert aesthetic and turn it into um, not only a beautiful yard, but really a work of art showing off these plants against these colored walls. Mm. And I love where you wrote, Pam, uh, you said, um, celebrate where we live rather than make apologies mm-hmm. for it. And that's what he did. This garden is feature-rich. So you've got the lawn, which really is not the only feature. It's just one of the many features. There's this gorgeous shell fountain. And then it looks like there's a fireplace. There is, yeah. There's an outdoor fireplace um, in a gravel courtyard with Adirondack seated around it. Because in the desert, you know, they, they, um, they can... Once the sun goes down and the heat dissipates, you can um, it can get quite cool, and so um, that makes a great place for nighttime gathering. And um, you know, I've I've never lived in the desert, but I suspect that that a lot of the garden use happens after the sun goes down. And um, so that yeah, I think that makes a very welcoming, inviting place. Again, that wall that the fireplace is set in yeah um, creates privacy and and a wind block and. Um, so it does double duty. Hmm. What's in the fireplace color. there? What is that? Uh, that looks like some sort of decorative stone, doesn't it? I can't recall. Yeah. I, I visited this garden, but I, I don't remember what that was. But okay. um, that might have just been because it was in the warmer season. Okay. I had to ask because, you know, of course I'm scrutinizing every picture, trying to take in every detail. And then I'm like, I can't for the life of me figure out what's in that fireplace. But I assumed, <laughs> I assumed it was yeah, the fireplace. So I'm gonna, you're going you're gonna to entice me to go back to my files and like look at it on the big screen to see what that is. You'll be calling <laughs> them going, hey, you guys, I know <laughs> I got to pick your brain. <laughs> yeah, I have this image. Yes. What is that? You'll have to let me know what you find out. You know, it's sometimes hard to, to discern. But, you know, if you do pick this garden apart in particular, I think. And you can almost see the owner's original wish list, right, when they sat down with this designer, because he fit it all in, which is always the sign of a good designer, because he's listening to his clients. For sure. And I wish I could show you more pictures. Um, It's because this is just a portion of the garden that's shown (laughs) here, and it, it wraps around the house. It's just, there's some, you know, courtyard areas and um, some gathering spaces and uh, more of those brilliantly colored walls and, and great plants in front of them. So, yeah, there's lots lots to see here. 
Hmm. Well, I have a feeling that garden number four is a little special to you. You call this uh, <laughs> this section holding on to every drop of rain. This is Christy Tenike's garden in Austin, Texas. So she must be uh, somewhat of a neighbor or an, or an acquaintance for you. You can probably pop over there pretty easily. But tell us about the highlights from this garden for you. Yeah, uh, Christine Tanike is a landscape architect, and she is really kind of a, a mentor to me and to a large number of people in Austin. Um, she's a, a landscape architect who's who's doing really big projects. Like she's working on the new entry to the San Antonio Botanical Garden in San Antonio. Oh wow! Um, she works on large scale projects, but this is her personal garden, and it's a great example. She often opens it to tours, um, so I've seen it a number of times, and uh, she's very generous with her knowledge here. She um, moved here from Phoenix a few years ago, and she um, bought this house on the west side of town. It's shaded by these ginormous live oaks, and um, when she bought the house, the front yard was just this really large, sloping St. Augustine lawn. And for those people who are in the south, you know, St. Augustine tends to be a thirsty lawn grass, but it's the one that thrives best in the shade for us. So it's pretty common because we have a lot of trees here in Austin. And um, what she noticed was that when it rained, and like I said, it tends to rain hard when it rains here, um, the water would just flow off that lawn. It, could, it, it couldn't slow down long enough to be absorbed. So it really wasn't benefiting the plants, the grass, or the trees much at all, she said. Instead, the water was just shooting right off the lawn out to the street. There's a drop of about eight feet, I think, she said, from the house to the curb. Wow. But it was a gentle slope. So you don't really notice it when you pull up, but it's there. Hmm. Um, so her goal was to hold all that rain on her property. And she started out by removing the lawn. And as she removed the lawn, she unearthed stone because she's on that side of town where there's a lot of caliche and limestone under the soil. And she used all that to build these check dams across her property. And check dams are essentially just small... Um, low walls, which don't even have to be made, they don't even have to be made of stone. They could be um, small berms, which is like tamped mounds of soil. But essentially, she used hers. She made hers out of that stone that she dug up. And so, imagine um, curving arcs. I, I always hold out. I'm holding on my arms right now. You can't see me, but imagine that your arms are out, like you're getting ready to hug somebody. That's what these check dams do. They're hugging upwards up toward the slope on the, on the lot, and they're creating these semicircles so that when the water flows down across the lot, they run, the water is caught by these check dams, uh, these low arcs of stone. Give people it's an idea about, of how high they are, because they're not very high. Just about a foot, you know, maybe 15 inches. Um, okay. they, they're not very tall at all, and they're certainly not um, impervious to water. The idea is that water moves through them. Okay. But it slows the water down, and it creates, basically, it slows the water down so that the water can pool up behind it just for a little while and soak into the soil. Um, and then as the water pressure builds, if it's a heavy rain, obviously the water's going to be flowing harder. It flows through the stone to the next check dam down the, down the property. And so imagine you have these kind of um, low arcs of these low stone walls across the property in strategic places. And um, it really serves to slow the water down when it comes, to hold it in place long enough for it to soak in and do the plant some good. 
And she has several layers of these across that slope. And you might think that would be really stark looking, but she's planted her property so lushly that they really become architectural features or they kind of disappear entirely among the plants. You don't notice them so much anymore. And she says that she has entirely stopped the flow of water off her property thanks to the use of these check dams and the fact that she has replanted the whole property with um, largely native plants so that she has this ecosystem kind of in place now where the soil is fluffier. It's not just a, you know, it's not just a, a overpacked lawn. Uh, and these roots, the, the, these grasses and these trees can really help soak up all that water when it does come. And so the benefit, of course, is that she's getting deep watering for her trees, um, which means that she has to expend less water to water all her plants. Um, so she's created more of a sponge-like garden, which is really important here in Central Texas, where things tend to get dry and packed, and then when the rain does come, it just washes off because it's like a dried-out sponge. It can't soak up the water. So you want to create a sponge that's able to soak up the water, and you can do that by creating fluffier soil, either through compost or, you know, these, these um, little check dams that she put in help hold the water, and then the plants do a good job of that, too, because when you have the plants and you have um, a rich ecosystem of, of plants in a garden, you're creating conditions for earthworms to keep the soil fluffy and that sort of thing. So it's just a total transformation of her yard from what it was to what it is now. It's a great example. Yes. Well, and this would be a fascinating one to see that Google Earth image from, you know, before yeah. she bought this property. And I also think it really speaks to her ability to have vision for her garden uh, space, because there are a lot of people that would have seen that property. I don't know how long it was on the market and would have said, mm -mm, not doing it. And you had mentioned on page 17, and I, I had underlined this, I start it, and then next to it I put OMG, because <laughs> it says here, uh, dozens of mature live oaks, which you mentioned, that, that would be the plus, but the downside is, it says, the driveway delivered cars right to the front window of their home. Mm -hmm. I'm like... Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. Most people would have said, mm, I, that's not life-giving to me. I'm out of here. This is not the house for us. She just persevered and, and saw what she was going to do with that. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. She did. She had good vision for that. And, you know, uh, ironically, those kind of features can be very appealing to people. Um, and they're very common in the neighborhood that I live in. It's not the same neighborhood that she lives in. But it's that era of a neighborhood where circular driveways are very common. I have one, in fact, myself. And that was billed to us as a selling point for the house um, and it, because it's a space for kids to play. You know, it's, it's extra parking for guests so they don't have to park on the street. So these things can be positive things in one light, but you're exactly right. Who wants to look out of their house windows and see cars? You, yeah. you know, that's not an appealing look. So she wisely, you know, could see past that and knew that if she took out that, all that concrete and all that grass, she could create, you know, an extension of these rooms that create an extension mm -hmm. of her house. So it's not only the garden itself and the approach for people who are coming into the house, it's what she sees when she looks out. Yeah. And that's something to consider too when you're designing your garden. Well, and it's always uh, it's always uh, germane to know your station in life. And right now I have teenagers that are just starting to drive. So those are not attractive cars to look at. 
<laughs> it's not so like true. we've got, you know, the beautiful sports car or something going on. You know, there's nothing, <laughs> nothing amazing going on in the driveway right now. So yeah, it's nice to have those things, you know, tucked away somewhere instead of uh, prominently yeah. displayed on the front of the house. Now I have to ask on page 18, there is uh, this image. Now I think of it as like a little coffee table, but I might be wrong. Is that round uh-huh. stone? Is it's that a, a coffee table? A gigantic. A... Well, it's bigger than, it's like coffee table height. Okay. But I think that baby is about eight feet or nine feet in diameter. Oh, you're kidding. Um, yeah. And for your listeners, what you're describing is this really large, it looks like kind of a floating stone table, yes. circular table. Yeah. Uh, I believe she said she inherited that stone or not inherited it. It was given as a gift to her from a client overseas. Oh my and, gosh. um, I know, and so she, you know, was looking for the perfect spot for it, and then when she created this garden, she found it. So she created this little nook in the front garden, which is um, kind of enclosed by shrubs and grasses. It's kind of a little private space with boulder seating all around this decomposed granite uh, small patio. And in the center of that space, she's got this just enormous floating stone table. I don't know what kind of base she's using to support the stone, but it's it's hidden, so you can't see it. So it looks like this disc of stone is, yes. is kind of floating in that space, yeah. And then the very center of it, she's planted an agave. So it must have like a hole table. in the middle of it, like a big donut yeah, or something. Yeah, like, it looks like a millstone, but on a really large scale. Oh, that's um, a great analogy. It, yeah, it's a really it's a really pretty feature. And, you know, just, you know, she just happened to have that stone, mm. so she created the right spot for it. So you and I are going over there, you're going to take me there, and uh, we are going to hang out. Is this where we set our drink? Is this actually where we sit down? How does she Mm -hmm. use that in her garden, do you know? When I've been there on tours, um, people sit on the boulders around the perimeter, and you can see those in the picture. There's boulders surrounding that space. And in fact, just to the right of what you can see in that picture, she has a small vegetable garden. And it's in the front yard. Um, it's um, in the one spot where there's kind of some extra sunlight because there aren't so many trees there. So this is a spot where you could sit next to the vegetable garden or take a rest, oh. I guess, after, after tending it. Um, or maybe just a spot where she likes to sit out there with a glass of wine with her husband. Um, but, yeah, it's kind of a little private sitting area hmm. next to the vegetable bed. I like it. Well, and Pam, before we get to garden number five, I have to ask you, because there is a wonderful quote that I know just really struck a chord with you in Christy Tenike's garden, and I'm wondering if you would mind sharing that with us. I would love to, because this quote meant a lot to me and kind of inspired the writing of the book. Um, It's a quote that I saw in um, one of the gardens that's featured, the Scottsdale Xeriscape Demonstration Garden. And it was carved into the edge of a water feature there. And it reads, the frog does not drink up the pond in which he lives. And that is a Native American proverb. Hmm. And I just found that so moving in terms of thinking about why we conserve water. What is it really all about? Well, that's the reason. You know, we want to leave water for our kids and our grandkids. And we don't want to just guzzle up Everything that we have right now, this is a precious resource that we need to conserve, and that's one of the compelling reasons right there. Mm, So that's why it means so much to me. I love that. Well, Mm -hmm. garden number five, you called Painting a Dry Slope with Color. This is the Gravel Garden at Chanticleer in Wayne, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. What are the highlights? You you said this is a pleasure garden. 
Oh, it is. This is a this is a really really stunning garden to visit. If if you've never been there, if your visitor, if your listeners have never been there, I really encourage them to go. I visited. I visited twice. Most recently was last spring, and um, each time I go, I'm just bowled over by the plant combinations, the sense of humor in what they do there through um, handmade benches and other features. Um, it's just it's a magical place to explore. But the reason I included their gravel garden in the book is because it's just a great example of, and kind of a surprising example of, okay, here's this gravel garden in Pennsylvania. You don't necessarily think of that as a Pennsylvania look, but it shows that, okay, maybe you do live in a place with more rainfall and you don't have to worry about water so much, um, but you still have areas of your yard that suffer from drought or because of the way they're positioned. So this one, for example, was on a long um, south-facing slope that just got dried out and hot. And in the um, on their website, they talk about how it used to have, um, I think it was a rose garden in that area, um, before it was transformed into the Chanticleer of today. And, of course, we know roses need quite a bit of water. Yes. So that wasn't really appropriate for this site. And so they transformed it into more of a Mediterranean. To me, it looks very much like a hill country landscape in Texas, based on the plants that they use there today, which include a lot of coneflowers and salvias and um, ornamental grasses and that sort of thing. You know, it's a great example. If you happen to have um, a dry slope in your yard and you're not sure what to do with it, it's hard to keep a slope watered if you just have lawn or thirstier plants because the water just runs off. And especially if it's south-facing, it's going to get baked all day long. Yes. This is a great example of maybe the way you could treat it instead. You know, turn it into a Mediterranean gravel garden with plants that are suited to where you live. You know, when I say Mediterranean, I mean the look, not necessarily those same plants. Um, You need to choose plants that are hardy where you live. But um, I think it's a great example of that, and it shows that you can do this anywhere. Or if you live in an area where Mediterranean plants are appropriate, boy, this is a great example of of the look that you could go for with that as well. Well, and the layering of color, right? There's so much color Mm -hmm. in this garden. Yeah, and it's it's a low-growing garden which you walk uphill through, at least that's how I've always approached it. I walk uphill through it. So you're surrounded by these plants, and they tend to be low ornamental grasses and flowering perennials. And I understand that if you're there in the spring, it, there's, it's full of, um, of bulbs that pop up, and I would love to see that one day. Oh, wow. So it's a, there's a succession of blooms. There's um, a lot of seasonal color in this garden, and uh, it doesn't require any supplemental water because it's just um, these plants – enjoy being dry. They don't want to be um, soaked in water all the time, so the rainfall that it gets is sufficient to sustain it, except in extreme conditions. And um, yeah, it's it's just a great example of, I mean, I would love to have this in my, in my yes. own yard. I think it would fit right in mm. <laughs> if I only had the sun. But yeah. my garden is very shady, so alas. Alas. Wow. Well, garden number six, you say bold foliage takes center stage. This is the John Kuzma Garden in Portland, Oregon. And I I can't wait to hear what you're going to say about this garden. I Because you got to, a chance to visit it personally. I did, yeah. This garden was on the um, Garden Blogger Sling when it was in Portland a few years ago. And um, it's, it is. It's a dramatic garden. Um, it's not necessarily full of of native plants at all. These are plants that are, um, some of them are native to Australia. 
um, some to the um, American Southwest. I'm sure there are plenty of natives in there, but it's it's a real mix. This is for somebody who likes to play with um, plant texture, plant color. It was designed by um, uh, Sean Hogan of Cystus, uh, a nursery out there. And a lot of people don't know this about the Pacific Northwest unless they live there, but it is dry in the summertime. So it, it gets a lot of rain throughout the rest of the year, but in the summer the rain cuts off, and for several months there's no rain at all. And that can be challenging for a garden that's used to getting a lot of a lot of water the rest of the year. And so people tend to either basically let their lawns go dormant by not watering, or they water a lot to keep things green. This garden kind of takes the opposite approach for this region of focusing on plants that love it to be dry. And um, he's planted them on these mounded-up berms, again, these gravelly berms, so there's mounded up soil. I'm sure it's well-draining soil with plenty of gravel mixed into it, and then it's topped with gravel for, for good drainage. And that does two things. So he's on a slope, a sloping lot that was overlooked by taller neighboring houses in the back. And the berms, which are positioned throughout the garden, serve to give a little extra height to the plants that he planted there. So they shield his house from view, and they create rooms. So as you're walking through the garden, you can't see it all at once, and that's always more fun to explore a garden where you don't, you can't just take it all in at the first glance. There's a reason to walk through it, and the the berms help achieve that, and give it drainage for when the rains do return in the in the cooler seasons. These plants won't rot because they have this this excellent drainage. So yeah, it's a, it's just full of bold um, texture, bristling plants, big grasses, giant agaves. And it's laid out in these very generous spaces, whether we're talking about the berms or the um, kind of gathering spaces he's created around focal point pots and, and a pond close to his house. It's just full of great features to explore. And I feel like a lot of orange in there as well with the foliage there and then a lot with of the orange. containers. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, mm-hmm, yeah. as a height specialist... <laughs> I loved that. I loved that technique of planting on top of a berm. It's a great hack for getting that privacy screen established with maybe plants that you're mm-hmm. buying that are are smaller just for budgetary reasons or even maybe mm-hmm. backbreaking reasons, right? It's easier to plant something that's six yeah. feet tall than, you know, an eight foot or something bigger where you have to have somebody come in and probably professionally uh, install it. But that planting on top of a berm, I, I love that idea. I, I've used it myself. And he did, I want to make sure I understand this, he did this kind of around the entire perimeter of this property? The whole garden is laid out this way. So, wow. um, yeah, I don't believe, as I recall, there is not any lawn left at all in the backyard. Hmm. Um, th- these pictures are all from the back from the backyard. Um, the front garden is quite nice too, but these are from the back. So yeah, he's uh, there's no mowing in this garden. I mean, obviously there's maintenance because uh, there's there's a lot of plants and it's a garden. But um, if you hate the mower, uh, this would be a great example. And it's a strolling garden. Yeah, you know, this is a garden to to stroll through because there are these winding paths and uh, it's a it's an extra deep lot. So he had lots of room for plants and hmm. and different um, garden spaces. And um, he created a fairly large patio right off the back of the house with a large trough pond right there that he can see through his windows. So that's another another cool feature right there um, just to enjoy through the windows. You know, always think about 
you're not always out in the garden. Sometimes you're looking at it through the windows. Well, and you're you're showing a container, I think, on uh, the bottom of page 23. Well, first I have mm-hmm. to ask, is that two garden bloggers in that image looking yeah. at the garden? <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> I don't know who that is, but yeah, those are garden bloggers back there That's admiring some plants. Yep. Well, yeah, and he's even color coordinated with the uh, with the pot, isn't he? He's wearing the same color. I know. That's so, the part um, where I was like, yeah. oh my gosh! And you know, if you're if yeah, you haven't been thing. on a fling, you wouldn't maybe recognize that. But I saw it and I thought, ooh, I have to ask her if those are garden bloggers. And then the yeah, other thing is, sure. is I like the fact that they're in that picture because it gives you a sense of the scale of mm-hmm. this pottery, this this item. I How big was yeah. that? It's a big pot. Now, they are in the background, so it makes the pot look even bigger. But um, yeah. it was, I want to say it was at least a four and a half, five foot high pot. Yeah. It's a very large pot. And it needs to be because that patio, that open space that's basically a gravel patio that it's sitting on, it's not really a patio. It's, um, it's where several paths converge. And in the center of that, uh, he placed this pot as a focal point. And mm. it's, a, it's kind of a, an orangey-red pot very tall, glazed red pot, and it really draws the eye. Yes. It picks up some of the colors of the kangaroo paw uh, plants that he has, and it contrasts with those silvery agaves. And it's a nice way to draw someone along a path when you have that focal point. You know, people use sundials, and mm-hmm. you could, he could have done a, a, a planted pot. That would have also been really cool. But he chose to just leave this pot empty. And it's just a really striking focal point because it's so large and the color is very rich. And I did not appreciate from this picture that it's where paths are converging. converging. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I think makes it really stand out is the fact that the gravel on these paths is a very dark gravel. It's almost like black. Mm -hmm. And so that really makes the contrast. Yeah, their native rock is basalt and it's the gravel from that rock. Um, So that's a, a, a rock that's normally found in that area. And he uses it to mulch the beds and to create the paths. So it all flows kind of seamlessly into Mm. one. Wow. And that really gives a sense of place. You know, when you use um, rock or other hardscape features that are from your region, you save money because you're not having to import that material from someplace far away. And uh, it really gives a sense of place to your garden because that material naturally occurs there. It belongs there. And I think that's important for a garden. You don't have to have it. I mean, you know, some people like to create an exotic scene that reminds them of a, of a vacation or someplace they love, and there's nothing wrong with that. But um, for most of us, we want a garden that, that, that feels like it belongs where it is, and that's one way to do that. Yep. Well, garden number seven, we're on the last garden of our tour. We're ready to get a coffee. And it says, <laughs> evoking water in a dry garden. This is the Scottsdale Xeriscape Demonstration Garden in Scottsdale, Arizona. There was mm-hmm. a lot to love about this garden. Yeah, this is a really remarkable space. Um, I happened to visit it in spring. Well, it wasn't just happenstance. I planned my visit for um, for April, uh, because I wanted to see the desert in bloom, and that's a beautiful time of year to go because um, they've had their monsoon rains and the real heat of summer hasn't returned yet, and that's when the desert just burst into bloom. And um, this garden was just a light with yellow flowers of all kinds. Yes. And um, what was so great about it? It's a xeriscape. It's a public demonstration garden for what a xeriscape is. And for listeners who don't know what xeriscape is. It, zira, uh, which is X-E-R-I, means dry. And so this is a term that means um, dry garden, but it also means not just dry plants, but 
it's a whole philosophy of 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 gardening when you make a zero escape garden it's about grouping plants together that like the same conditions it, you know these are common sense things but we often forget about them when we're making our gardens um, so put plants together with with similar watering needs so that you're not having to spot water here or there or water everything too much for the mm. one plant that needs the extra water um, it's about taking advantage of of natural conditions and um, it's really um, great advice for those of us in drier climates and you know, like I said, Arizona, this area of Arizona, I think it's eight inches a year. I have to double check to be sure, but I think it's around eight inches of water a year of rainfall. That's just not very much. No. And you would think, thinking about that from a wetter climate, that they couldn't do much besides a few cactus. But that is really, this garden shows how wrong that is because they have native trees that thrive on that, Palo Verdes, Palo Blanco trees that are, that are just beautiful. They've got all these wildflowers. These large succulents, agaves, um, grass. There's plenty of grasses that thrive in dry climates, and this garden makes use of all of those um, to create this really textural and surprisingly lush garden uh, that thrives in the desert. Without, without, I don't, I don't know how much supplemental water they give it, but I think it's very little. Um, underneath this garden is actually a reservoir, a public reservoir. So this garden was, there's a lot of symbolism in this garden because oh, the wow. reservoir, of course, is drinking water for the people who live there. Hmm. And on top is planted this example of how to have a beautiful garden without using a lot of water. The irony and is well, I, not wasted yeah. on me. That's amazing. No, yeah, it's, it's, a, really, it's a really remarkable design. Um, and there's an art installation in this garden that I've included in the pictures. But to me, it looks like a waterfall of stone. It's, it's these steps that wander down from an upper elevation in this garden through these stands of white-trunked Palo Blanco trees and through these kind of boulder-strewn areas with yellow wildflowers on each side. It's beautiful in and of itself, but it also represents the, a human spine, the way it's laid out. Hmm. And it also serves as a um, waterfall a stone waterfall, and on top of that, um, the water is meant to flow down this area and be collected at the bottom of the slope in these um, dry streams. And then that water is collected, and I think it's sent off to a nearby reservoir that may be used to water the garden in drier seasons. Uh, it's just a remarkable space, and yes. it's doing a lot of different things. There's a lot of symbolism in it. And it's also just really, really beautiful to look at and to explore. Yes. Well, I'm glad you brought it up. I've got a couple of questions for you about this garden. The the okay. artist uh, that designed this this uh, spine uh, evoking mm -hmm. uh, it almost looks like a rock slide. It's more deliberate than that, but it's uh, I understand what you're saying with the stone. But it's Lorna Jordan, and she called it Terraced Cascade. That that was the name mm -hmm. of the piece. But uh, right next to that image, and I I was immediately struck. That's the first thing that drew my eye. So I'm very glad you talked about it. But the next picture next to it, I thought, what is that? Is that railroad tracks? Because that kind of is what mm. it looks like from here. But then I read and it says, broadly curving, is it Gabion or Gabion walls? Gabion. Gabion yeah, walls. walls. Mm -hmm. So are those kind of like the, oh, what did we call them at Christy Tenike's garden? The, um, oh, the check dams. Yeah. Are they kind of like check dams? They kind of are, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I have mostly seen gabion walls in gardens that I've visited in the West, including in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I think traditionally gabions were used in highway construction projects um, or just basically construct. It was a way to um, stop um, drainage from just pouring across a property. And um, essentially it's like stone, uh, you know, just not not any kind of pretty stone, stone necessarily, just like... Um, excavated stone that was collected and filled into these um, wire cages, uh, usually just rectangular boxes, basically made out of wire that could be any size, oftentimes, you know, a couple of feet tall and wide. And they're laid on the property to, like I said, slow down, slow down runoff, uh, prevent erosion, that sort of thing. But designers have picked up on that and, and are using it in gardens more and more. I'm seeing them used as um, seating in gardens, um, as pedestals, as decorative walls that block the wind, and they can be filled. I mean, I, I've seen gabion walls lately, even here in Austin. There was one filled with um, compost. Oh, really? So, like, they had walled the perimeter of their garden with um, gabion um, cages and filled it with their compost. So it was like doing two things. It was creating a wall and it was also um, creating compost for them, which I thought was really creative. Oh, that is creative. But generally they're filled with stone. Yeah, filled okay. with stone. Okay. And that's what these are. And so if you were, especially if you were excavating another part of the garden or if you had access to some inexpensive um, rubble, essentially you could fill up those gabions with it. And then it's used to uh, prevent erosion as it's doing in this garden. Okay. So it's these curving walls, again, you know, like... Um, Tonight's check dams, they're, they're, they're arcing toward the slope so that okay. as the water flows across the slope, it's slowed down by the gabion walls, soaks in so that it can feed those plants, and then it moves through the gabion walls down to the next layer. Hmm. Well, the, the image on page 25 of these, do you call them Palo Blanco trees? Mm-hmm. I mean, to me... Um, daughter of the Midwest, those look like birch trees a little bit. They do. Yeah. And I'm it's, sitting here as, you know, a 20-year gardener going, oh my gosh, somebody exercised amazing restraint because they're <laughs> perfectly placed and there's not too many. There aren't, yeah. And, and did that just partly, strike you when you I, saw it live? Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, to me, they look like ghostly figures in yeah. that in that landscape um, because of those really they do have really white trunks and they're kind of airy trees, and they're they're kind of scattered along that um, the terraced garden. And like you said, they're not overdone, and that's mm-hmm. I think as a gardener, that's one of the hardest things to get right is to yes. practice restraint. I struggle with that myself all yes. the time. Um, so this is just a very well designed garden, and um, and it does look really great. And I think. Restraint is also really important in a desert garden. I think that's something a desert garden can teach us because if you look at the actual desert, plants are given a lot more space than they would typically in a garden setting because that way they don't compete with each other for the available rainfall. Mm. So I think desert gardeners have a better sense of that restraint anyway, probably yeah. than those of us in wetter climates because that's how plants naturally occur there. Mm. And certainly this garden, I think, is planted more densely than a native landscape would be, but not overcrowded by by our standards at all. No, not at all. 
There were two other things that caught my eye. One was the steel bridges over the dry stream. I I Mm -hmm. love any time someone goes to the effort of putting a bridge over a dry stream. I just love that. And then um, the amphitheater. You've got to tell us about this amphitheater. Yeah, that amphitheater. Let's see, that's on page 28. Um, So it's a public garden, and it's a teaching garden because it's, it's a demonstration garden. And I thought it was really clever how that at the bottom of this sloped area, they created an amphitheater for seating. It looks like spirals of concrete walls. Um, with scattered trees down there and some xeric plants. I think they're Hesperalas. Um, so they could have classes down there on these, on these um, tiered walls. But also, this area collects water when it rains. It's a rain garden, but it's a desert-style rain garden. And so it's, you know, it's sparingly planted, and water collects down there. And then I think it goes, I think, again, it's connected to that reservoir system. Um, so uh, full, this garden is just full of clever ideas, not only for people living in the desert, but, you know, people living anywhere um, who want to create a sense of place, who want to know how to deal with slopes, um, how they can turn those slopes into places where you can, you know, you can um, have gathering areas, seating areas. I think there's a lot to learn from this garden. I agree. I love it. Great design in that garden. Well, part yeah. two of your book is devoted to practical tips and techniques for saving water, another favorite part of, of your book for me. And you talk about how to transform a garden into a water saver. And you start by encouraging gardeners to save what you call water, which is that liquid gold. And there are a couple of points here that I'd really delight in hearing you expound on. The first is that you mentioned that plants prefer rainwater to tap water. And then second, when it comes to our properties, we fight an inherent barrier that most folks don't even consider or think about. And you say, our yards are designed to shed water. And I heard you on a another interview somewhere, and you had this great quote. You said, we need a new model, one where we aren't funneling all of that water falling on our properties straight to the curb. Could you comment on those two points? Yeah. Um, from a house building perspective, we want water to move away from the house. Um, whether you have a basement or you just want to make sure that your foundation is kept um, secure, you know, that's a good thing. So, um, certainly, we don't want water to pool up around the foundation. But from a traditional builder standpoint, um, yards in general are, have always been built to just shed water away from the house and right out to the street. And I think in past years, many designers were thinking in terms of that, and landscape architects were thinking in terms of that too. How do we get the water off the property? You know, we don't, especially if you live in a place like Texas, Central Texas, where we do have a lot of flooding issues, and plenty of people deal with that in their yards. And, how do I get this water out of my property? So we've always been in this mindset of getting the water out, getting it out to the street, and then the storm drains take it away, and we don't even think about where it goes. Well, that water goes out to our creeks and our lakes and our bays, and along the way, as it's flowing down those storm drains, it's picking up motor oil and cigarette butts and dog poo and, you know, any kind of pollutants, fertilizers, pesticides that we put on our lawns that's all being picked up and sent out into those waterways, which are either natural waterways or our drinking water supplies. So I do think um, 
we need a new model for thinking about this, and I think it's underway in a lot of places. Um, even cities are getting in on the act for for city-owned spaces now, and they're thinking about ways of holding the water on the property. And the beauty of that is, if you can keep it away from the house, but hold it on your property instead of sending it out to the storm drains, you're helping to clean that water because plants do that for us. Plants are great at filtering out pollutants through their roots. And so if you, that's what rain gardens do. Um, if you, and, but, but even your lawn can do it to some degree. So you're just trying to figure out ways to hold the water on the property away from the house as much as you can, like Christy Tenike did in her design, keep that water from flowing off the property. And not only does that help the plants that you've planted because it gives them the deep watering that they need, especially if you live in a, a drought-prone part of the country, um, but it also preserves the waterways and our drinking water. So there's all kinds of great reasons to do that. And it just takes some rethinking about the ways that we grade our property um, or regrade it. You know, if you've inherited a property where the water is designed to go out, sometimes we have um, French drains that just send the water right out to the street, that sort of thing. We, if we can rethink all that um, and regrade in certain circumstances, we can hold on to the water mm-hmm. without damaging our houses. That's the key. Yep, you're right. Well, here's an opportunity for folks listening that they can't get every day unless they buy your book. And that is that you walk gardeners through how to create a rain garden. So let's go through this with you. You can be the project manager for building the rain garden. (laughs) And to you, I know this probably seems very straightforward, a rain garden. And yet it's more complicated than most people think because so many folks think that all they need to do is throw some plants in the area of their yard that naturally pulls up during a downpour. But that's not where you want to plant, and that's not what a rain garden is. So let's have you walk us through. We're going to go out into the yard, and we're going to select the right spot, and then we're going to create the rain garden. Tell us what to do. Well, first of all, you don't want to pick the spot that normally pools up in their yard um, because the goal is not to create a pond or a bog. We don't want to deal with mosquitoes. We don't want water to stand in the yard. Um, So... To explain what a rain garden is, it's, it's, the rain garden concept itself is pretty simple. It's a bowl-like depression that uh, could be of any size, um, generally kind of broad and shallow is what you want, and it's designed to hold water for about 24 hours, um, whether that's runoff from your roof or your driveway or just water kind of moving across the property. And it's a way to, again, hold the water on your property and let the plants filter it through into the, into the groundwater supply. Um, so when you're trying to choose the right spot, you need to make sure you're away from your foundation or your septic system, and that would be at least 10 feet away from your house at a minimum, or 50 feet away from the septic system if you have one. You want to find a spot, again, it's not the lowest spot on your property, so as to avoid creating that pond. Yep. Um, and you'll want to do a test dig to make sure you know whether the water drains before you commit shovel the soil for, for the dig out of this rain garden. And um, you can just dig like a, a foot down, fill up the water, fill up halfway through the um, ha- halfway into the hole with a bucket of water, and just let it sit. So you're going to watch and see whether that water disappears after 24 hours. You come out the next day, the water's still sitting there. Well, that means that's not a good spot for that rain garden. That water is not going to drain fast enough. Um, you could have boggy conditions if you create a rain garden there. So you'd want to look elsewhere if you dig. Uh, your test hole and fill it up with water and it doesn't drain. 
But if you come back and you find the water has drained away, that's probably going to be a good spot for your rain garden, assuming that it's the distance from the house that you need. Um, so then it's just a matter of, of digging it out. And you can use, you can just, you know, for some people that they, they have smaller lots, um, you could dig this out with just a shovel and a strong back. If it's a bigger property and you want a bigger rain garden, you might want to use a small um, backhoe. Um, eight to ten inches deep is usually sufficient. Four to five inches would be sufficient to hold the water, but you want to loosen up the bottom of that rain garden so that the water can soak in easily. And so digging it a little deeper, then you come in there and you fill it with about four to five inches of compost and mulch after you plant. And so then you're left with about a four to five inch deep um, depression for your rain garden. Okay. And um, yeah, and so, and then what do you plant in the rain garden? Well, you need to look for plants that can handle seasonal um, flooding conditions. And these typically are plants that would thrive along a stream side where maybe the water gets a little higher and they can handle that just fine. Uh, prairie plants tend to work really well because they're used to those conditions. Mm. Um, grasses that have really deep roots can be, can be excellent choices. So I tell most people, uh, look online, see if for your region there is some state information about creating rain gardens where you live, and look for the plants that they recommend for that, because plant choice is key. You've got to have plants that can be adaptable enough to um, take that extra rainfall when it comes, but that won't just wither away if they don't get daily watering when it's not raining. Um, so they need to be adaptable plants. And you do have to water a rain garden, which sounds kind of funny to some people. But when you're establishing those plants, um, just like if you're establishing native plants, you can't just throw them in the ground and expect that they're going to live without um, taking care of them for, you know, the first year or so and just making sure those plants get established with appropriate watering and, and weeding because um, it's easy for a rain garden to get overrun with weeds because you've created this you know, lovely fluffy soil, and they're getting a little extra water maybe because they're in a they're in a rain garden, and weeds can take over quickly. So do be prepared to weed until you get your rain garden established, mm. um, and then after that, the weeding should be much lighter. Well, I love that you point out the the type of plant and then the fast draining, because there are a lot of people that would go to a nursery or or garden center and say, okay, I've got a rain garden. I need plants that like wet feet. And it's actually the opposite. It is. And, you know, there it, it's, it's plants that, are, that do double duty. Um, and there are lots of plants that fit that model, but you do want to be careful when you select them and make sure you pick plants that are suitable for rain gardens for that mm -hmm. reason. Because, yeah, they do have to be able to go dry sometimes, yes. but they also need to be able to take it when it's... So like in a... You know, an agave, if you live where I live, would not be a good choice for, for a rain garden because they do not want to sit with a little extra water for 24 hours. That would be, make them very unhappy. Um, but you could certainly use ornamental grasses here, and that would be a, a good solution. Cone flowers, those, you know, prairie plants, uh, they tend to be really good choices. And, they're, and the benefit of that is they, um, the flowering and the seed heads on ornamental grasses um, and the flowering of cone flowers, those are very attractive to pollinators, uh, if you want to attract butterflies and bees and uh, birds to your garden, a rain garden can be a really good way to attract them. Well, there are some terms that I thought would be productive to review with you that are in part two of your book. And there were four that I picked out, and I thought they would be a great way to introduce people not only to these terms, but to the ideas behind them, because they're great water-saving concepts. The first is curb cuts. 
Mm-hmm. Curved cuts are, I mean, that's a kind of a literal thing of what it is. You know, the curving that we have in cities can be cut with city permission or according to city code to let water flow into the yard instead of keeping water out of the yard. Curb cut gardening, in my research, I believe might have started in Tucson, Arizona, where, of course, it's, it's quite dry. There's an activist in Tucson named Brad Lancaster who uh, worked with the city to make curb cuts legal there. Um, and essentially what that allowed them to do was uh, either through contractors or through um, permits, cut the curbs along the residential uh, property line, um, create a rain garden right along the street so that you make the cut in your curb, which is essentially a gap of about, I don't know, like 6 to 12 inches, and then the water can flow into that rain garden as it's coursing along the gutter. You know, after a rain, your gutters are kind of flowing with water over to the storm drains, but curb cuts allow diversions for that water. So the water gets pulled out of the street and into these rain gardens that are um, depressions a few inches below grade so that the water will flow in. And those can be planted, again, with rain garden plants appropriate to that region. And the benefits are twofold. It's preventing pollutants from going into the storm drains. And that's good for the city and the city's uh, municipal water system. And from the residential homeowner's point of view, um, as Brad Lancaster points out on his excellent website about this, um, it allows people to plant gardens in these spaces where they wouldn't normally be able to because they didn't have enough water, that maybe they don't have access to water there, or it's too expensive. I think he planted um, mesquite trees in one curb-cut garden that he created, and mesquite trees, um, the, they can, you, can, you can harvest the fruits uh, or the seed pods, and they're edible. So he was essentially created an orchard in one of these curb-cut gardens hmm. in a place where it would have been too dry to, to grow anything there before. Just that little extra water from the, you know, the, the extra rain they get each year um, makes a difference in allowing these plants to thrive. Again, this is about keeping the water on the property and keeping pollutants out of the waterway system. Well, so any- I even saw curb cuts in places like um, Portland when I visited. The city has grabbed onto this idea and in order to uh, keep uh, pollutants out of the waterways. And they have a green street program where certain neighborhoods have curb cuts and rain gardens inserted uh, into these little pockets behind the curb. And it greens up the street with these little pocket gardens, and it's also functional because it's um, filtering out those pollutants. It's really ingenious. Yes, well, I was going to say it it serves that purpose of purifying the the water, mm-hmm. right? Because the plants are going to do their job. And I just exactly. couldn't I just couldn't help but think about all of the times you see someone who doesn't have a lot of space to plant and so they find themselves planting between the sidewalk and the curb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which the is strip. yeah that hell strip which is technically city property in many cases and then mm-hmm. they right. have to you know water it and tend to it when in so many instances if they did a curb cut they could really alleviate that burden of taking care of that nice little addition that they made yeah it, it allows you to not have to water as much for sure um i, I really love to see the city the city is getting on board with these things because they realize that it has an impact on um keeping everyone's 
water bills lower because um, the more pollutants you can keep out of the water system, the, the better as far as that's concerned. So, and, and also it greens up the city. You know, our, our cities tend to be overpaved. Um, there's no place for the water to go when it rains. That can create um, backups on the storm drains. Um, curb, cuts, uh, curb cut gardens are a great, great way to alleviate some of those problems and beautify the city at the same time, add a little more greenery to, to overpaved areas. So it's kind of a win-win situation. Hmm. Well, these next three are, are things that have been around for a long time. I know you call them ancient strategies, and I love that. And the first one is berming. I love to use berms, but could you speak a little bit about this whole art and science of berming? I'm sure as a designer, you've you've put in many berms, but for folks who maybe have never even thought about doing something like that, uh, inspire us. Tell us a little bit about using berms. Well, berm, just to define it, is, is mounded soil. And... Um, you know, some people end up with berms kind of accidentally. If maybe they dig out a pond or a dry stream and they've got extra soil, what do I do with it? You know, it ends up kind of piled up in the yard. That's a berm. Um, but you can be more artful with berms, and you can place them like um, Ten Eyck's check dams to direct water in your yard, to um, hold water in a rain garden. So when you dig out a rain garden, for example, you're going to end up with some extra soil. You can put it on the downhill side of that rain garden to build up the soil a little bit and hold the water in place in the rain garden. Um, so the berms uh, can be used in different ways. And um, I really I really like them planted as well. We've seen that in some of the examples we talked about today. Some of the gardens uh, have bermed um, large areas of the property to create extra height, um, to help create privacy, and then those areas are planted. So, um, you know, berms can be pretty useful, and it's just a simple technique of, um, um, you know, positioning some extra soil, tamping it down so it doesn't uh, move away um, when it does rain. And um, if you're going to plant a berm, um, and the other purpose of berms is that it, it gives plants that need good drainage, it gives them a little extra um, drainage if you live in a place where you can have a lot of heavy rain especially at certain seasons. So it keeps those plants' roots from sitting in soggy soil. That's really important in places like Texas, for example. Hmm. Um, there, are some, there are some tricks to planting those, though, and I've heard it described as an elephant grave. When you um, have a large kind of oval-shaped berm just plopped in the middle of a lawn, you know, maybe you had leftover soil there, or maybe, you know, you wanted a garden in the middle of your lawn, and uh, it can be easy to kind of make this mistake of not blending the berm into the larger garden. And so I talk a little bit about that in the book, about how to avoid that kind of elephant grave look. <laughs> of um, <laughs> It's kind of a sad phrase, but very accurate, I think, in describing oh, what it can look like. Such a good um, visual, So you want to tie it in. Yeah, it's a good visual, and um, good visual. you want to kind of blend that berm into the larger garden, not just have it be the one raised element in the middle of a lawn, but, um, you know, blend the edges into the rest of your of your garden beds. Hmm. Um, I always... You know, planting, I always oh, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. Well, oh, I was, was going to say, uh, you, you know, not have just like a row of trees on top and, and really low plants. You want it to look natural. And so there's tips on how to make it look more natural and less like the elephant grave look. 
<laughs> yes, less like the elephant grave look. Well, my yeah. my little tip on on using berms in kind of a sneaky way is I have a number of plants being in the Midwest that I have to protect during the winter, and I'll bury the plant. And I love having areas where I have berms because I always feel like I get to only half bury them because I can go along the side of the berm and then I just kind of cover it. So the plant's already kind of nestled along this kind of steep area of the berm. And then I just kind of, I don't have to dig a hole. I can just kind of nestle it in there and then cover, you know, one side of that, of that plant. I do it with my, yeah, I do it with my hens and chicks and a few other uh, Mm. plants. Some of my fruiting trees, I'll just uh, tip over and, and bury them, especially if they're along, along a berm or, or uh, planted into a berm. And that I always feel like I'm cheating. Yeah. Yeah. That's a cold winter, a cold um, climate (laughs) trick that I didn't know about. (laughs) Oh, well, and the next one, the the other one that I wanted you to talk about is microbasins. I hadn't heard about these. Microbasins are, now this is one of those ancient techniques uh, um, going back thousands of years. You know, in dry, um, in dry climates, people who were, who were um, growing crops, doing agriculture, um, you can create trenches that deliver water to areas that you plant and then um, divert water into that from a stream or what have you or, or you know, pour water from a well into this and let it um, flow to those plants. But a microbasin is, is essentially creating um, a, a place where water can soak into the soil and um, that can work for crops or it can work for just allowing your landscaping to get that extra drink of water in terms of thinking about what that might look like, um, again, I'm going to invoke Christy Tenike's, um check dams that we talked about, which are like those arcs of stone that create low walls in her garden, the check dams. Um, behind those are the microbasins. So it's it's a, a, a portion of the yard where water can soak in. Maybe it's a little lower than the surrounding soil, not a pond, but again, just a few inches deeper so that the water can soak into the soil in those places. And... Um, yeah, you know these these don't these aren't complicated, but we we sometimes don't think about ways to sculpt our property to hold onto water. And um, when you start thinking about where you might like to slow water down on your property, you can place these berms and then create micro basins behind them to allow that water to slow down and have time to soak into the soil um, before moving you know across your property any further. Mm, I like it. And the last one is swales. I had not heard of that term before. A swale is is basically a shallow gully that collects runoff, uh, maybe that's flowing downhill or that's flowing along the street. You often see swales in more rural areas. Uh, you know, they're often called drainage ditches. But if they're shallower, they're swales. And um, they're just meant to collect water. So many times, uh, swales are just very utilitarian. And they collect the water and they send it off, you know, far away from the house, out to the street maybe, um, or in a larger space. Uh, like, in fact, I pictured a swale from, uh, I believe it was New York Botanical Garden in, on page 49. That's a much more artful treatment of a swale. So it's a, it's a shallow um, depression that collects water that's coming from uphill. And it's planted with, again, with like rain garden style plants. And so the water moves through it to 
another part of the garden, maybe to a larger rain garden. I don't remember what this one I pictured went to, but the swale itself mm. is quite pretty. It's quite attractive. It's a garden feature in itself. Yes. Um, and then there's another one pictured on that page that's a much smaller scale, much more of a kind of residential lot size. And again, it was um, collecting water off the driveway, and from the house it was just a few feet um, to the right of very narrow space, and letting water move through there, but also through a planted area where it can help filter the, any pollutants and uh, slow that water down a little bit. You know, that picture, uh, this one where you show the the smaller scale, narrow Mm -hmm. swale that runs along a driveway, uh, that one was striking to me because in our neighborhood, we have a lot of two-car garages. And Mm -hmm. the driveways, of course, to maximize every inch of land when they were building these developments, they put the homes close together and the driveways are pretty darn narrow. And again, I'm really cognizant of this because I have teen drivers now. But (laughs) what people do to try to widen their driveways is they'll put stone on either side of that driveway so that when their kids are driving, they know they're not backing out onto the grass. But as I'm looking at this picture, I'm like, oh my gosh, how much more fantastic would it be to take that stone move it a foot away from the edge of the driveway and have a swale instead with maybe some mm-hmm. plants that could handle, you know, oca- the occasional crush. <laughs> um, yeah. Because yeah. that and, would just you know, be so much more beautiful, wouldn't it? It would be. And this, you know, this picture that we're talking about right now is very similar looking to a dry stream, um, only it's it's more densely planted than a dry stream. But both of those serve the same function of... Um, being a place where water can flow, where you're directing water to a certain place and helping it move out of a different place, but also slowing it down. Mm. So if you have if you have water drainage issues, you know fast moving water is just bad. Um, it's gonna it can you know cause erosion. It can tear out your other plants, and you really want to slow that down. Give it time to soak into the soil. Give those plants time to clean clean the water, especially if it's coming off of the driveway, because you know all cars drop oil and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, that can be a very uh, effective way to do it. And uh, with certain dry streams, if they're wide enough, you can have room to put um, some stepping stones meandering through there. So you can use it as a, as a dry weather path as well. And then when, the, you know, when it does rain, then the water can still move through there. Mm, I really like that. I really like yeah. that. Well, part two of your book also covers paving as a means to saving water, which I think, again, a lot of people would not think of paving as a water-saving option for their garden. I'd love to have you read the introduction to this section on page 59, where you start by recognizing the valuable role of paving in the garden. Sure. Here's the intro. Paving is an unsung hero of our gardens often seen merely as a utilitarian material that keeps our feet dry, makes a level and comfortable surface for walking or seating, and keeps our cars out of the mud, paving is, above all, practical and hardworking. Thoughtfully designed and installed with skilled craftsmanship, it can also be beautiful. But whether humble or artful, paving can do even more for us. It can be an essential part of a water-saving garden. And what I want to convey in this chapter is the use of paving um, so many times when we gardeners start thinking about making our garden, we plunge into it with just plants. And we don't really think about how we're going to create spaces for us to enjoy those plants. Um, so, and, and oftentimes also with builder-designed homes, 
or even custom design homes that don't incorporate a landscape architect, the the outdoor spaces that are designed for us to enjoy our gardens are too small. And so I really do advocate for thoughtful hardscaping. And hardscaping just means places that are not plants, um, places that are made for people to enjoy the garden, paving, um, walls, anything that's not um, part of the living features of your garden. Um, and what I tell people is think about, for water-saving purposes, think about making those surfaces permeable to rainwater. So rather than paving a large patio in concrete, see if you can um, incorporate a, a gravel patio instead or some sort of stone that's not mortared and not set in concrete so that water can seep into the cracks. And that, again, it slows rainwater down, it keeps water from just rushing off to the street, and it soaks in where your trees and your plants can get the benefit of it. The key, of course, is not to overdo it. You don't want to just pave over your garden, but you want to be thoughtful about it and create plenty of space for the people to enjoy your garden um, and, and not just feel cramped on one of those little tiny little patios that you so often see on the back of a house, mm-hmm. kind of tacked on. I agree. Well, one of the best decisions I made in my garden two years ago was to install gravel paths along my front garden in front of my front porch because I was walking there all the time anyway. And Mm -hmm. I made that decision and I didn't know if I'd like having a big path right in front of the house. And I have to say, we connected basically when you come out the front door, you step onto a bluestone patio and then you have the option of kind of walking on these bluestone steppers through the garden that lead you to the garden path, which is this crush Uh, I think it's crushed granite, and then Mm -hmm. that winds its way along the front of the garden to the fire pit. And it's been one of the best, most life-giving things that I've done in the garden. I just, the joy of walking on that path, that very defined space, (laughs) instead of, you know, just stepping on the lawn. And then Uh um, just, it's so beautiful. And I mean, I love raking it. I love the look of it when it's wet. I love, I mean, there's so many things (laughs) I love about my crushed granite gravel path that I just can't speak highly enough about it. I think people, people underestimate the joy you can get get from using good paving in the garden. I totally agree. We did something similar at the front of our house a few years ago. Um, we have these natural berms on our property that the house was built around. The, they, we have a lot of live oaks in our yard, and it was kind of a rolling landscape. And I think the houses in our neighborhood were tucked in among these trees. You know, they didn't disturb the trees. So they tucked the houses in. It's very nice to have those features, but what it meant about the front yard was it had this, these kind of weird slopes that sloped right down at the foundation of the house, and water would kind of pour off toward the foundation of the house, and it was slippery. And um, so we dug out um, some of those um, edges of the lawn that were slippery and slopey, and we couldn't keep it watered with, for the grass, and put in paths there. And they're wonderful. They really do allow you access into the garden. It gives you a reason to stroll around. Um, you don't have to trudge through wet grass, you know, to get anywhere. Um, it's just an invitation into the garden, and uh, it really does invite you to stroll through it. And so, yeah, you know, using gravel, like your comment about raking it, um, there is some maintenance with gravel. Um, mm-hmm. You can't just, you can't easily just blow it like you could concrete. Mm-hmm. But um, I find that it's not a terrible amount of maintenance, mm-hmm. uh, depending on the kind of gravel that you use. And there is a lot to be said for kind of the crunch, crunch of gravel. I I find it a very soothing sound. 
I even read somewhere someone said they liked that it was kind of an, uh, a visitor detection system, you know, because you can hear people coming on a gravel oh. path. Um, you know, it, it's a very tactile material and, and, and an audible material. And um, I and gravel has the benefit, too, of being fairly inexpensive as far as a paving material. Huh. So there's a lot of great reasons to use gravel. Wow, I really like that. You know, Thomas Friedman has a new book, and, and of course, he's from Minnesota, so I always like to uh, kind of pay attention to what he's doing. He's the guy that wrote that book, um, The Earth is Flat or The World is Flat, talking about globalization and whatnot. But he just wrote a book called How to Survive in the Age of Acceleration, and he talks about how we're in the middle of these three exponential accelerations, the market, Mother Nature, and then Moore's Law, which is all about how um, the speed and power of microchips essentially doubles every 24 months, and then that causes all of these you know, massive technological advances. But he said yeah. that the answer to all of that craziness is to find a way to anchor yourself and that we need to start celebrating everything that's old and slow and that everything that matters is the stuff you can't download. And I was listening to that going, gardening, gardening, gardening. And uh-huh. I was thinking about um, all of the crazy things that happened last year. And um, Pam, I knew you and I were kindred spirits in a sense when I had seen some posts you'd shared, and I know you loved Prince. And I loved Prince as well, and I thought, oh, we totally get it. But... You know, when those moments happened last year that were tough, we were losing, you know, all of these wonderful artists. I can't mm-hmm. tell you how many times I would get on social media and read that people were coping by spending time in their garden. You know, people that maybe yeah. never garden, you know, found their way outside and they were anchoring themselves. Things were happening it really too does. fast. Yeah, it really does just give you a soothing moment to even take 10 minutes out of your day and just go sit in your garden, find a shady spot or, you know, if it's cool outside, find a sunny spot and and just kind of sit there and and take it in. Um, You don't have to have a fancy garden for that in any kind of natural space can do that for you. And um, uh, yeah, I just, I get so much pleasure out of um, out of that. And it's hard for me to sit still in the garden. I'll I'll be the first to admit. But <laughs> every now and then, I can force myself to sit still and then uh, just relax and enjoy that space. But that's part of what paving is designed to do: is to give you those spaces where you can just go out and sit or sit with a friend, um, or if you like to throw a party, have a place to throw a party. Um, yes. And there's pictures that show examples of those kind of things. But the key thing is thinking about how you can use your garden, ways, places that will invite you out there. Um, again, none of this has to be fancy. It could be as fancy as your budget allows, but just creating some paved spaces with a seat or two or a few Adirondacks or whatever yes. to to get you out there. And the beauty of those spaces, from a water-saving point of view, is that you don't have to water them. Yep. Well, I listened to an interview that you had done last year, and you said basically just what you were saying now, that paving is an invitation to come out and Mm -hmm. use your garden. And in your book, you highlight four different paving options that you're partial to. And I thought it would be great if you could just touch on them briefly and maybe offer some ways that people have used them in an elite way. And then I have to have you comment on your own 
uh, paving option, especially where you've cited this fabulous stock tank pond that you have, which I think of as your signature piece for your garden. And of course, as you and I were talking about in the pre-chat, anytime you can incorporate that water, it's that symbol of abundance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, as far as the uh, paving materials that I recommend in the book, um, we talked about gravel already. And, you know, this is, uh, this is a paving material that works in any part of the country because you're using it in Minnesota. I'm using it here in Texas. Yep. Um, I, I, and there's all different kinds of gravel. I really recommend choosing a gravel that's native to where you live, that's quarried locally because that's cheaper and because it's going to look more natural in your garden than if you import some. Um, you know, expensive gravel that's from someplace else. Um, there's also things like decomposed granite, which we use a lot here. It's used a lot out west. Um, and that uh, does have some more maintenance issues than regular, like, pea gravel or crushed gravel, only because it's kind of a, it's got a lot more, it's so crushed that it's got, it's more, it has more of a soil texture. And um, in places like Austin, where we get about 32, 33 inches of rain in an average year, um, Decomposed granite areas can get quite weedy if people aren't on top of the weeding all the time. Um, it's a very popular look here, but if you use it for large expanses, it can really get quickly overtaken by weeds or Bermuda grass, and then it just becomes a nightmare of maintenance. So be thoughtful about your gravel. Um, research it. Figure out what kind of gravel works best. Um, uh, you know, um, put a packed surface underneath the gravel if you're going to use pea gravel so you don't sink into, you know, rolling pea gravel. Pea gravel's rounded. And if you use it in too deep of a layer, your feet just sink into it and it kind of travels a little bit. So there's tips on that in the book on how to choose the right gravel and, and how to lay it. Um, I also like, as far as permeability, the beauty of the gravel, of course, is that water passes through it very easily. Yeah. Um, but you can also do other materials that are water permeable, like um, grid systems with grass. And uh, that's, I think, more common in temperate parts of the country like yours, mm. where there's like a concrete or a heavy-duty plastic grid system, and it has these open cells, these open spaces where you can pop in plugs of turf grass or maybe like monkey grass or things like that that can grow in there, and it kind of greens up a parking space. It can work really well even for a driveway. Um, doesn't tend to work so well in really hot parts of the country like mine because it, you can't keep it watered. You know, you don't you don't want to obviously put in something that you have to uh, expend a ton of water on to keep to keep green. But in parts of the country where it rains more, that can be a good system for having paving, but also still keeping it green. Mm-hmm. And it also lets in it lets in the rainwater, which is like the key part of it. Sometimes you want something that's more of a sturdy surface than gravel or a grid system of grass. And, you, you know, you might want a stone patio or a paver patio, and those can work, too. You know, if you don't um, set them in concrete, if you use unmortared stone or, or bricks or pavers, and um, there's gaps in between that if they're left unmortared, the water can seep in. Not as much water, of course, can seep into the ground with those kinds of patios as with gravel, but still, every, every bit helps. And, um, and those can be really beautiful and, and can create really firm surfaces where your table legs won't sink in if you're concerned about that. Um, so that's, that's also a good, a good choice. And those can be laid in all kinds of patterns and can add a lot of, of beauty to your garden. And then I touched on pervious concrete, which is something a lot of people haven't heard of. Yes. Uh, this, is more of a, this is more of an option for someone who's having 
um, a professional designer um, or a professional installer. It's not really a do-it-yourself kind of project, but there is a material called pervious concrete, uh, pervious paving, where um, if you have um, a driveway that you want, you know, you need to have it paved, but you still want water to be able to percolate through to the to the to the soil. Um, there's there's concrete that allows you to do that. In fact, I have a uh, sump pump system in my front yard that's all gravel where the water collects, and then across the top of the sump pump, there's a square of pervious concrete, and it actually works. I've seen the water pour right through it. It looks oh, like wow. a, a stepping stone. You pour water, and it goes right through. So it's really cool. And they can do whole driveways out of this material. It does have some maintenance issues. You have to keep it clean. You can't, you know, like dump a load of compost on top of it because it's important to keep those open spaces in the material clean so the water can pass through. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And it does require a professional install. But for certain circumstances, it's something that that might work for someone. Hmm. So I I did want to mention that too. Okay. And then as far as the stock tank pond that you mentioned, I always, uh, you know, one of the... When I do when I do talks, I like to say that paving options don't just have to be places that you sit. They can also be play spaces. And I really encourage people to think about ways to incorporate play spaces into their gardens. And that could be anything from, you know, like a bocce court or a horseshoe pit or a, a hammock that has mulch spread under it. Anything that you just don't have to water anymore can really, you know, make a dent in your watering bill. And um, and those spaces are still um, pervious for, for rainwater. Um, but one thing that some people don't think about that can be great to incorporate into a garden, especially a dry garden, is a water feature. And that might seem counterintuitive. You know, why would you want to add something that requires water when you're trying to save water? But um, it to me, it's a, it's a symbolic gesture, especially if your garden is largely full of drought-tolerant plants. It's wonderful to have some sort of water feature. It doesn't have to be large, but it attracts wildlife. It attracts your own eye. It's a focal point. Um, Christy tonight calls it uh, calls a water feature, a water vessel, a symbol of abundance in a dry garden, mm, which I is a that. phrase that I love. Yeah. yeah, which harks back to the idea of the Moorish garden traditions of, you know, you have this desert, and then you walk into this courtyard, and the center of it is uh, is a water feature. Um so it, it, it's a focal point for the eye. It's a place of rest. Um, it symbolizes that there's an abundance of something that, that there isn't. And so it's all these wonderful things in one, and um, that can be symbolized in any number of ways. You could use it just a simple bird bath. Maybe would do it in a small space. If you have more space, it could be um, a disappearing fountain that would attract birds and bring the sound of water into your garden in my own garden, I used um, a stock tank to create a pond. It's a raised pond made out of a stock tank, which is just, uh, you know, for people who, who go to ranch supply stores, you can buy them there. And they're used to water uh, cattle and other, and other um, I don't know, sheep. I don't know what. But anyway, they're, they're great. They're, um, they come in all sizes. Like you can have a two-foot diameter one, which is the size that I had in my former garden. In my current garden, I bought a much bigger one. It's eight feet in diameter. And um, I paved a patio around it about four feet, let's see, about four feet wide in diameter around the whole thing. 
from one side to the other, I think it's about 14 or 15 feet wide, oh, wow. this circle in my back garden. But that doesn't require much water because um, it's it's fairly shady space, so it doesn't evaporate too quickly. And um, I don't have a splashing fountain in it. I have a, a fountain, a little drip fountain in the center that does not lose much water to evaporation or wind, which is key with a water feature. You want to uh, choose a, a fountain if you have one that, that doesn't really lose water to evaporation. And I get so much enjoyment out of it. You can see it out several windows of my house. When I go outside, um, it attracts, you know, I get to watch the wildlife that's attracted to it, and that can be everything from birds to bees, um, dragonflies, and um, it's just, it's a huge part of the enjoyment of my backyard. And I really encourage people to incorporate some sort of water feature into their garden for that reason. And if anybody listening is curious about making a stock tank pond, um, at least in Zone 8B, which I always put that caveat, you need to know what works for your own zone. But for Zone 8B, I have um, three posts that are how-tos on making a stock tank pond. And I can put that link on your um, Facebook page. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Well, I love that. I, I love anytime there's an in-depth blog series, and that, that will be uh, very valuable to people who are interested in trying to recreate that on their property. Um, I have to ask, do you put BTI or anything in that pond to try to tamp down mosquitoes? No, uh, you don't have to do that if you have, um, if you have fish. Um, I use just goldfish. Or uh, I also have a lot of um, little tiny native mosquito fish. They're called mosquito fish, but I think their their real name is gambusia, uh, which occur naturally in streams here in central Texas. Um, if you have fish, they eat the mosquito larvae. If you don't overfeed them, they eat the mosquito larvae. With my goldfish and the mosquito fish that are in there, uh, I don't. I almost never give them any food. They're not like koi. Koi have a lot more maintenance requirements. Plus, koi will eat up all of your water lilies. Oh. and other underwater plants, and plus they're expensive. So I don't mess with koi. I just use inexpensive goldfish and native mosquito fish. Huh. And they eat the mosquito larva. That's what they live on. Oh, wow. And they eat algae also. So um, consult with a pond store, if you have one in your area, as far as how many fish your size pond can support. And um, don't overdo it with the fish because, you, you know, you want to have the right number of fish in there so that they're healthy. And then if you can incorporate running water, that also helps with any mosquito issues. But to me, I really rely on the, um, on the fish. Now, occasionally, if I want extra insurance on the mosquito issue, I'll throw the little mosquito dunks into the pond. Yes. But, uh, yeah, mosquito dunks are strictly safe for fish. They're, um, they're organic. They're, um, they prevent, I believe the way they work is they prevent the mosquito larvae from becoming adults. So, um, you can find other uses for them as well. You can put them in areas of your yard that don't drain very well or um, in your gutters if they tend to pool water. So mosquito dunks are really useful. With the system, if you get your pond established with uh, with fish and the right plants, you really you don't need any chemicals. <clears throat> Excuse me. You you have a natural balance established with the plants cleaning the the pond. Um, and I talk about all that in my. It's kind of a long series of posts about it. So. I'll refer readers or listeners to that for more information. But you really can achieve a natural balance in these stock tank ponds. It's not difficult. Um, it takes a little tolerance for kind of an algae bloom in the spring as the water heats up. 
um, and the, the water lilies have not spread out across the surface of the pond yet, you can get a bit of an algae bloom, which just means your water turns green. But that, for me, always resolves naturally um, by the time the lilies cover the surface of the pond. Okay. Well, part two wraps up with the water-saving work of protective shade in a garden. And you highlight the hard work of arbors, trees, and windbreaks, but you also feature something I'd never heard of before, and that is shade sails. They were completely new to me. So introduce us to them, and then let's chat a little bit about the powerful practice of minimizing wind in a water-saving garden. Okay, yeah, shade sails are probably more common in the southwest. Um, they are relatively common here in Austin. I've also seen them in Arizona. And essentially what they are is um, like a fabric, like a it's like the material that sails are made from for a sailboat, I believe. Uh, they're canvas. Um, they can be colored or they can be natural looking, which is kind of an off-white. And they're attached to um, very strong posts um, and kind of basically float in a triangular shape. Uh, no, I can't think of a better way to describe it. But they float in a triangular shape over a garden or a patio to provide shade. And usually when they're installed, they're installed in layers. So you would have one shade sail and then you would have another one installed overlapping the, the lower one. Um, and usually in a triangular shape, sometimes in a rectangular shape. So I've got a, I've got at least one picture in the book of what that looks like. This is in an Arizona garden, and it's a large triangular shade sail. But it's basically the same thing that you would see in, um, uh, you know, markets, ancient markets, where they would um, install um, fabric canopies. I mean, it's a type of fabric canopy, but it's installed in, in like these. Um, on these posts that are high tension and they can support the strength of the wind. So they do need to be installed professionally. Mm -hmm. And I believe they came from South Africa and Australia to the U S about 20 years ago. Mm. And, um, they're, they're wonderful alternatives to arbors. They have a more contemporary look and, um, they can introduce an element of color into the garden. If you choose one that has a, that has a dyed, uh, shade sail. So, yeah, they're, they're really great. I don't see them a lot in residential gardens. I typically see them more in um, large um, patio spaces at restaurants here um, or over playscapes. That they're typically used over play spaces here in Austin because we do have such an intense summer sun. Oh, okay. Huh. Mm -hmm. When I saw it, I yeah. immediately thought, oh, it's sails on a ship, and instead of being vertical – they're horizontal. They're stretched out horizontally. And they are, yeah. Yeah, it's very striking, though. It is. It, like I said, it has a very modern look, and um, it works well, especially with um, modern desert gardens, I think, uh, because it just, it just fits the kind of natural drama of the plants. And in gardens in the Southwest, uh, boy, you know, shade is super important, and we don't always have the big shade trees. Uh, in drier regions that that you do, you know, in your region. And so shade sails just give you that little extra bit of permanent shade. They work great over decks and patios, too. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and you talk a lot of, in this section about windbreaks. And whenever mm-hmm. I work with kids, I, I always ask, you know, what is drying to our plants? And of course, the first answer is always the sun, the sun. Mm-hmm. And I have a dear friend that lives kind of on the edge of the development. And so behind her, it's wide open space. And she gets so discouraged every year, she'll put hanging plants all out around her pool. And even though she has drip line, these plants end up shriveling up and dying. And she's like, what Mm. is going on? And I'm like, hey, you are completely exposed here. And those things are getting so beaten down by the wind that you probably have to really amp up that watering even more than you think because you're only accounting for sun. You know, she was just thinking sun Mm -hmm. and the wind is drying those plants from every angle, from beneath, from all around. And, and it's just so drying, but you talk a lot about that. Yeah. Yeah. And they're up in the air. Yeah. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're up in the air, so they don't have the insulating factor of the soil. Um, she should grow succulents in those pots. Those would be great, I bet. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, um, wind is a huge drying factor. And, um, you know, some regions have more wind issues than others. But um, uh, a windbreak is great. You know, people in cold climates have long used trees for windbreaks to mm. prevent um, the, the, you know, the winter winds from howling through the yard and damaging houses and stuff. And um, hot climates can use them for the same for the same purpose, only blocking um, hot, desiccating summer winds. So it really depends on your particular circumstances as to whether you might need a windbreak. But um, but trees, uh, even shrubs, for you know most of us have um, people who live in suburbs and cities have small lots, and in that case, um, you don't have room for a large windbreak of, of trees probably, but you can use. Um, walls and fences for creating microclimates for your plants um, if you if you place them carefully um, basically you know sheltering the plants behind that um, wall or fence or row of shrubs so that you can um, basically keep those plants from drying out so fast from the wind give them a little extra shade um, give their roots a place to grow deep into the soil where it's not um, so sunny and hot you know in the same way that mulch um, shelters the roots of plants when you mulch your garden, and um, uh, a wall or a fence can do the same thing. So there's lots of strategies to think about in terms of, of you know, your friend with the pool. You can't really do that with a pool because she's she's got an open space, but yeah. um, she might be able to do it on the edge of her property if mm-hmm. she has room for a windbreak. That's right. Well, part three of your book is all about plants, and naturally, you start out with a suggestion to lose the lawn our national ground cover. And you put that in critical perspective in the first paragraph on page 115, which ends with the term a gimlet eye, which is defined as a sharp or piercing glance. Put another way, that which a gimlet can do physically, the eyes can do metaphorically, and a gimlet is a tool that's used to pierce something. So why don't you read it? And then I'd love for you to share some of your favorite lawn substitutes, some of which are probably from your first book, which I thought was very cleverly named, and you called it Lawn Gone. Yeah, that is meant to be funny, and uh, it it still kind of cracks me up to say the title. (laughs) Uh, Lawn Gone with an exclamation point, which um, is... uh, leads to some creative punctuation when you're trying to write it down somewhere. But yeah, let me, let me read that real quick, and then we can talk about um, lawn alternative ideas. 
um, rolling like a green carpet from sea to shining sea. Lawn Rain Supreme is our national ground cover, surrounding nearly every house in every neighborhood across the country. After all, it's inexpensive to install. Basic maintenance is straightforward. And when laid as sod, it's instantly done. The downside, and it's a biggie, is that most lawns need lots of water to thrive. Also, traditional lawn upkeep, watering, mowing, edging, blowing, fertilizing, applying chemical weed inhibitors and pesticides, wastes energy and releases pollutants into the air and our groundwater. For these reasons, many people are now looking at lawns with a gimlet eye. And this is, to me, this is really a movement that's um, um, just been gaining and gaining steam. Um, the idea of choosing alternatives to the lawn. Now, for, for all these years, for decades and decades, we've all just inherited lawns um, as the default ground cover when we buy a house or when we're when we build a house, what do we put down? We, we lay sod mm-hmm. um, for the reasons I just mentioned in red. It's inexpensive. We all kind of know what to do with it. But um, as drought has become a huge concern in some parts of the country and also the sustainability movement as far as what can we do to save water no matter where we live has taken hold and our interest in, in helping um, you know native wildlife have places to... Um, drop by and and get some food or shelter in our kind of overpaved cities. For all those reasons, I think, we're seeing a a huge interest in lawn alternatives. And um, Lawn Gone kind of tapped into that in 2013 when it came out. And um, that, that book deals exclusively with the idea of what can I do instead of have a lawn? Because for a lot of people, as I learned when I was doing design work, it's not that people aren't willing, it's that they really don't have an idea of what they can do instead. Mm. Um, you know, do I just plant it with a big garden? Because, you know, maybe I'm not somebody who wants to take care of a garden every weekend, and I don't want to do that, so what can I do instead? So it's full of ideas, some of which we've talked about here, including, you know, um, plant alternatives, but also paving and fun features, things that don't require water, but that still give you plenty of enjoyment out of your yard. Uh, things like that. Um, so lawn uh, replacement is a smaller part of this book, um, but it's still an important part because that is a uh, lawn tends to be the the thing that we spend the most of our watering on, no matter where we live. But especially if you live in a hot climate like I do, it's just a lawn takes a tremendous amount of water to keep up. And um, you know, so many times I see people just set their um, sprinklers to go off every single day and mm-hmm. those lawns get watered every single day and they really they don't need it and you can train your lawn to be more water thrifty you can allow your lawn to go dormant in the summer if you live where you have you know moderate rainfall for that um, or you can think about replacing it all together and to me that's the more exciting idea because uh, it gives you a more beautiful yard you can attract more wildlife that way um, create a little uh, island of refuge you know for monarchs passing through or mm are the bees that need our help. There's lots of reasons to really get rid of the lawn desert and add in plenty of other plants that do a lot more for us. Mm. And so you said, you know, you wanted to talk about some of those ideas. Um, Some of those can be really simple in terms of it doesn't, if you, if you like the look of lawn or maybe your neighborhood association requires it, you can still um, practice alternatives to the traditional lawn 
And by that, I mean the traditional lawn that requires, you know, a certain look, um, you know, sheared every week, edged, um, you know, just super manicured and possibly doused with chemicals to keep it looking a certain way. If you can back away from that model, that's just a huge step right there. Yes. And, um, you know, there's um, native or eco-lawn mixes for almost every region of the country that um, oftentimes don't need to be mown as often, maybe just once or twice a year, which, think of that, that's a huge savings of time and effort right there, not yep. to mention reducing polluting uh, pollution. Um, so I recommend some of those. Um, grassy ground covers are another great kind of lawn alternative. They look a lot like lawn, but again, require a lot less mowing and watering. And those might be uh, native uh, short grasses that naturally occur in your area or sedges. Um, almost every part of the country has some sort of native sedge. Um, here in Texas, we use um, Texas sedge. And um, that's just, a, a, I think it makes a beautiful meadowy ground cover for shade or part shade areas. I'm using that as a lawn alternative in my front garden under uh, several live oaks. And it's resistant to deer. I have to mow it once a year. Hmm. It doesn't require a significant amount of water. I do, have to, I do water it in the summer, um, but, but certainly much less than I would have to do a traditional lawn. To me, that's just win-win. If you don't have to have a lawn for soccer games or for having a pet run around on, then you can choose one of these um, alternative lawns that um, that really have this kind of wonderful meadowy texture and still give you that similar kind of, you know, um, negative space that people like to talk about with gardens where it's not densely planted as kind of a, a serene green space. You can get that with other plants. Mm, good point. I like that. Yeah. Well, in part three, you introduce this wonderfully descriptive design concept, and it's ripple zone planting. What is it, and how can gardeners use it to design their 2017 water-saving gardens? Ripple zone is a visualization technique, and it has really resonated with a lot of people when I talk about it. Um, What I tell people is to envision your house as a stone that you're dropping into a pond or a pool of water. And if you drop a stone into a pool of water, you get ripples, and smaller ripples are closer to the house, and as the ripples move out past the stone or past your house, as we're thinking about it, the ripples get larger and larger. Um, So what I tell people is if you're starting from scratch or if you're redoing your garden and you're trying to think of ways to make it more water thrifty, think about... Um, dividing mentally your yard into zones based on these ripples. So the ripples, essentially the areas that are closest to your house, would be the more water-intensive areas. Um, So if you have plants that you really love, you don't want to give them up, but they tend to take up a lot more more time in watering or they have higher water needs, um, you don't necessarily have to give all those up. Just try to reduce that area significantly and, and put it where you can really enjoy it up close to your house. So that way you're not only keeping an eye on those plants in terms of keeping up with whatever watering needs they need, but you're getting double the enjoyment out of them because they're right there by the house. So it's a smaller area and you're getting more enjoyment out of them because they're closer to where you live. As you move out into your yard, places that um, maybe you can't see as easily from your windows or um, 
you know, just the bigger, of course, the ripples get bigger as you move out from your house. Replace any thirsty plants you have there with groups of plants that require much less water. And as you move out to the perimeter of your yard, the ripple zone model would call for plants that maybe don't need any supplemental water. Hmm. Um, in fact, if you have a large enough property, maybe those areas would be left wild. You know, some people have, um, have kind of wildscape areas in their yards if they live in that kind of a neighborhood or um, they have a large enough yard. Sure. It's just a visualization technique that you can use to really help you plan out as you're planting where you're going to invest in more water-intensive plants, and that would include lawn and where you're going to be able to reduce your watering, and it helps you group those plants together. Now, obviously, if your back corner is the soggiest, boggiest part of your property, you're not going to go out there and put your dry-loving plants. So, you know, obviously this has to bow to common sense, but, um, it, but it's a great technique to use if conditions throughout your yard are similar and, um, and you're trying to reduce that watering. Um, think about the ripples, think about drop the stone into the water and plant that way. And if you're starting from scratch, you can use that model to set up your irrigation system to fit that as well. And that can really help you. Oh, I love that idea. Yeah, that saves you a lot of water. Hmm. That way you're not having to water everything the same. Yeah. You're, 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 you're using a lot less water on the areas that have plants that just don't need that much water. Well, I can see the appeal, and that immediately solves so many design issues for people, which is usually the hardest thing, right? It's like, what do I do with the space? And this immediately gives yeah. you a plan. And if you're a gardener who loves plants, and, I mean, who listening is not, right? Um, <laughs> then uh, it's easy to go to the nursery and just buy whatever strikes your fancy without really thinking about the watering needs. But if you're following a plan like this, it can give you some guidelines. You can say, okay, well, um, these plants that I'm buying are going to need this much water, and so I should put them in this part of my yard. But, uh-oh, this, you know, the part closest to my house is getting kind of full, so I better not buy any more thirsty plants. Uh, let, me, let me get some, you know, some drought-tolerant plants to fill in the rest of my yard. It just gives you some guidelines. It can really help if um, that doesn't come naturally to you in terms of thinking about the watering needs of a plant. Yeah. Beautiful. I love it. Well, part four just may be my personal favorite part of your book after the tour, probably. And it's every gardener says that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's creating the illusion of water in the garden. And to me, gardeners who have mastered that art of illusion when it comes to water in their garden always are so inspiring to me. Part four covers all these aspects of illusion. And uh, here were the different areas that you covered. The first was water features. I have numerous. Mm -hmm. I think I have over seven water features on my oh, on my nice. small suburban property. Don't Google Earth me, Pam, because you'll be like, are you kidding me? You've totally overdone the water feature. <laughs> but there I am. And then um, number two is water evoking plants. And I put in parentheses here, you did a great job on this section. 
And then, um, you're welcome. And then there's an inspired section that's titled Squeezing Water from Stone. And you have this most captivating photo of a cat sitting on a mirror. And you have to tell us about that. So I'd love to hear you take on these wonderful things that you're highlighting in part four. Sure. This section, I have to admit, was the most fun to write. Um, I mean, I enjoyed writing the whole book, but this section is about creativity and, and, you know, creating magical moments in your garden and doing it creatively without um, without having to use a lot of, of water uh, to do these things. And, and some of them, the beauty of it is uh, you're not only using less water, but you're creating something that looks watery, which can be a great fool the eye trick for a, for a drier garden or just something fun, just a whimsical moment in your in your garden. And so I just kind of tried to explore all those different ways of kind of creating that magical moment or fooling the eye uh, with plants or stone or the mirror um, into creating this illusion of water in a garden that's really not using a whole lot of it. Um, and, you, you know, even if your garden is in a place that gets plenty of rainfall and you don't really have to worry about a dry garden, you, there's still plenty of inspiration in here that would be fun to incorporate. So I just uh, really had fun exploring these ideas. But the cat on the mirror is... Uh, that's illustrating the idea of using stone or glass in a garden to create the idea of water where there really isn't any. And this picture that you're referring to is of this cat, and I, his name is Zorro. I understand. This is not the garden I had a, the pleasure of visiting. Um, it's Lynn Blackman's former garden in Del Mar, California, and Steve Gunther took this photograph uh, of her cat, Zorro, sitting on this round mirror, mm. a small round mirror, uh, surrounded by these little grasses and uh, and a, basically a dry garden, and it's a great illusion because it looks like the cat is sitting on a you know on a pool of water yes. because the mirror is set on this bed of sand, and um, it's just a creative way of introducing the idea of you know what does water do in a garden? It reflects the sky, um, it introduces silvers and blues. Um, you know what when you think about what water does, then you can replicate it with other with other features like this mirror or with some colored glass or with plants that either look like the color of water or move like water, like grasses can undulate. Um, if you make, if you maybe um, plant a river of grasses or a river of maybe some blue salvias, you can create this illusion of this um, stream or a pond or something like that. You can really have fun with it and, and trick the eye or just kind of elicit a laugh Yes. You know, when you see something that, you know, it's not real, but it, it looks like something else, mm-hmm. and that can be fun. Well, it really was a tremendous section. The images in here are really wonderfully done. So, you know, the people the are part- so creative, and I've had the pleasure of seeing so many, so many creative ideas on my garden travels, and I, I did include a lot of of those kind of images for people to see, and they just they range the gamut, you yeah, know, as do. far as plants or hardscape ideas or, or whatever. It's, yeah, it's, it's very fun to imagine doing some of these things in your own garden. Yeah, there's even at the very end, there's a paver that you show that has a fish design in it that's surrounded uh-huh. by these little glass beads in the grout work. And I thought, oh, my gosh, so many wonderful little uh, touches here, little t- attention to detail. That yes, 
It's just amazing. And that was in, that's in Lucinda Hudson's garden here in Austin, and she has a mermaid garden. So that's in her mermaid garden, uh, theme garden, which is, which is great. She uses succulents that look like underwater plants, and she's got mermaid figurines sitting around and that little fish tile and lots of blues, hmm. and it's, it's very creative. Well, you know, that's why Starbucks chose the symbol of the mermaid as their logo, because the mermaid is beckoning the people to come to Starbucks and, and get oh. their coffee. And so her mermaid garden, yeah, her mermaid <laughs> garden is um, beckoning, you know, people to come to her garden. I had the opportunity, yeah, I had the opportunity when I was uh, first working in HR to hear um, a woman that was working for human resources at Starbucks at the time. Her name was Bradley Honeycutt. And I thought she had the most spectacular <laughs> name on the planet. Yeah, and really. uh, at the time, I had just, I barely had heard about Starbucks. It was, I'm dating myself here, but it was in the early 90s. And I was, you know, obviously in Minnesota where there weren't a ton of Starbucks. But um, we got to hear her speak and I just was blown away. I had no idea the deeper meaning behind the Starbucks logo. So now I have a deeper, yeah, different appreciation. Yeah. yeah. New appreciation <laughs> for mermaids. So it's a great symbol for a garden as well. Well, uh, part five offers 101 plants for water-saving gardens, which people can go through on their own, you know, identifying what's appropriate for their zone, great options for their mm -hmm. region. But I simply have to ask you about one that I know you have because there are some tours of your garden in videos available online, and you reference your personal favorite, and it's Moby. It's your whale tongue agave. <laughs> Yeah, speaking yeah, speaking of underwater plants, uh, I had to name that one Moby because of its common name, whale's tongue. Um, the the botanical name is Agave ovatifolia. Um, it is it is a plant. It's the only plant in my garden that's earned a name. Uh, I don't tend to name my plants, but that one earned a name, and I, I carried it with me when I moved to this house from my old house. Um, I, it's just it was the iconic plant of my back garden. It's just this. I, I say in the present tense, but Moby has expired. But it's this beautiful, silvery blue agave that was about five feet across and about five feet tall at his during his last days, which was last fall. Aww. And um, just stunning. Looks like a big blue rose. But last fall, or last spring, actually, it started to bloom. And for those of you who aren't familiar with agaves, an agave only blooms one time, and then after it's finished blooming, it dies. Oh. And... Um, yeah, you know, they're called century plants, but, but they don't really live 100 years. This one lived about, let's see, 10, 11 years. Oh, that and makes then, me so sad. it up its bloom stock. Well, it is. It's a, it's a bittersweet moment because it's very exciting to see uh, an agave bloom because they're, they're, they're amazing blooms. They send up a bloom stock about 20 feet tall. Oh, my It's gosh. like the size of a tree, and it shoots up so fast, like over a period of a few weeks or, or a couple months. This tree basically erupts from the center of your agave, oh. and uh, I'm like, this one was touching the live oak branches above it. It was that big, and oh um, and then once the bloom stalk reaches its height, it sends out these candelabras of of yellow flowers. There's different styles of agave blooms, but this the kind that I had it was like a, a candelabra arms reaching out with these clusters of yellow blossoms and it was very dramatic it was very exciting and of course i knew when it was all done that it was going to die so it was also kind of heartbreaking because mm. i you know just loved this plant for so many years i had a birthday party for it last year when it reached its 10-year anniversary with oh me my gosh. Um, it was just ridiculous how i doted on this plant 
But he did bloom, he did die, but um, he, he created a lot of, I say he, anyway, he created a lot of little baby mobies on his bloom stalk. They're called bulbils, uh, bulbils, uh, however you pronounce it. They're essentially clones of the mother plant. And um, so when I had the bloom stalk cut down and I harvested all those bulbils and planted them up, and I had hundreds of baby mobies, and I've been sending them out to my blogging friends all over the country who are into agaves. And uh, so he lives on in many gardens across the country. But, um, yeah, it was a fun experience, and I've got a new agave out there uh, in the spot where he used to occupy, and I'll be nurturing that one along. But, um, yeah, that's just one example of a drought-tolerant plant. Obviously, there's in that section, there's all kinds of plants for different parts of the country. There is an emphasis on the drier parts of the country, but certainly there's plants in there that would be appropriate for yours as well and for other parts. So um, I encourage people to look through there and check out the zones and make sure it's appropriate for where you live. Always do a little research online before choosing a plant to make sure it's drought tolerant where you live and that it can handle your winters and can handle your summers if you live in a hot place. And, um, you know, have fun, experiment. Well, Pam, I have one last question for you, and then we'll move into how people can get a hold of you, get a hold of the book, and find out what you're up to. But first, I just have to say it's been such a privilege and an honor to speak with you about this fantastic book and the ways that we can honor water in our gardens for 2017, starting today and into the future, if we haven't already. And you dedicated your book to those who see. And I thought it would be fitting to close our conversation today by having you describe that shared vision that you had in mind when you wrote those words. Well, it's, it's, it's great to me that you brought it up because you're the first person I've talked to since the book came out a year ago who's asked me about that. Hmm. And um, it really is uh, a stigma about people who can, who see the world around them. And by that, I mean, you know it when you meet somebody like that. And I think gardeners tend to be people who really see the beauty of the natural world, who who look at it. And not everybody does that. If you have um, non-gardening friends or people who aren't into nature and you go take a walk with them, you might notice things that they never see. They just, they're not attuned to it. And I think we can teach ourselves to be more attuned to the beauty of the world mm. and to its wonders and stuff. But to me, that's what gardening has always been about and what I like to share with people on my blog and I always appreciate it when I meet somebody else who really sees and who really sees the intricacy and the beauty and the smallest things. And I think that's what gardeners do better than anybody else. And I was dedicating the book to those people. Mm, I love that. Well, Pam, if people want to get a hold of you, you're on social media. Tell us again the name of your blog, where to find it, and then how people can get a hold of you. My blog is called Digging. And um, it's at pennick.net, which is my last name, P-E-N-I-C-K.net. Or you can just type in digging into your uh, search bar, and it'll pop right up. Um, I have a Facebook page, um, Pam Pennick Garden Chat, uh, which people are welcome to visit. And um, I can provide those links to you on your, on your Facebook page as well. Um, upcoming events, I have a garden talk at the Wildflower Center on February 25th. Uh, it's not just me. It's a whole day symposium um, put on by the um, Native Plant Society of Texas, and that'll be hosted at the Wildflower Center. 
and uh, registration is for the whole day of, of speakers. So I encourage people to look that up if they're interested. And um, I'll have a book signing after that talk. Hmm. And um, other things that I have going on, um, I'm on the advisory board for the Garden Blogger Swing, and I encourage any garden bloggers listening to this to come to the Garden Bloggers Fling this June, mm, which will be held point. in yep, the D.C. and Northern Virginia area, the capital area, Garden Bloggers Fling, yep. which is always a great fun thing to do. And um, I'm also starting a garden talk series out of my house for anybody in the Austin area who's interested. Um, it's called Garden Spark, and if you visit my blog, you can find information on that. Uh, my first talk is sold out. I'm modeling it on the... Uh, house concert model of people who invite bands to perform in their homes just to help support the musical community and to give, um, you know, attendees an up-close and personal look at uh, maybe some new music. And I'm doing that with garden speakers here in Austin, especially people who um, are ready to speak about design. I really want to create a thoughtful community about um, garden design here in Austin, and we just have not had access to those kinds of speakers. And I figured, why not do it myself? Of course so you did. that off. Yeah, of course I did. Yeah, somebody <laughs> had to. And it's going to be me. So the first talk, like I said, sold out right away. I'm creating a mailing list for anybody who's interested in hearing about future talks. And I hope to have about three or four of those a year. Wow. What's the, what's the first talk on, out of curiosity? Um, Scott Ogden, who is a garden designer, is going to be speaking on Moonlight Gardens. Oh, of course that sold out. Yeah, it's going to be a great topic. He has a book on the subject, and he's going to be talking about, you know, especially here in in a hot climate, um, we tend to enjoy our gardens more after the sun goes down in the summertime, and he's going to be talking about how to design a garden that is full of, you know, glowing white flowers and beautiful scented plants that we can enjoy in the cooler hours. Well, Pam, I'm sure after today there are going to be plenty of people who are interested in getting a copy of your book for themselves. Where do you want people to go to purchase your book? Where's the best place uh, for folks any to go? Place, as the phrase goes, any place books are sold. Okay. Um, it's sold. You can find it online on Amazon. Uh, bookstores that carry gardening books will have The Water Saving Garden or Long Gone, I hope. Um, it, you can go straight to um, my blog. And in my header bar, you can click on my books and more. I don't sell the books directly myself, but um, I do have links to all the online places that you can buy them if you're looking for alternatives. So um, I encourage people to look there. And um, some nurseries and uh, botanical gardens do carry the books as well. Mm. But I would you know, suggest if you're looking for it specifically to, um, to call and make sure. Okay. But otherwise, really anywhere they sell garden books. Well, and I have to thank you because you're giving away an inscribed copy of this book. The lucky winner will get to tell you what to inscribe, to personally inscribe for them, and then you're going to send it to them. So in order to win the book, they've got to be in the Facebook group for the listener community for the show, and that is the Still Growing Podcast group on Facebook. And there is a link to it on the website, sixfootmama.com, or they can just go to Facebook and uh, search for Still Growing Podcast group and then request to join. I know, Pam, you're in there. So if people have specific Mm -hmm. questions or they're looking for uh, tips or where to find more information, you'll be a wonderful resource uh, for listeners. They can continue the conversation with you and also find links to all of your wonderful great 
great resources. I know you'll be sharing and posting in the group uh, with listeners as you find interesting things for them um, in the coming weeks, days, years, what have you. So I just want to thank you again so much for this wonderful in-depth conversation on the water-saving garden. It's been a true pleasure. Well, thank you so much. It was really great talking with you, too, and I'm so glad you have an interest in water saving, and thanks to all the listeners. Absolutely. Well, have a great day, Pam, and we'll be chatting soon. Okay, sounds good. Thank you, Jennifer. All right. Well, that's it for the show today. I want to thank fellow garden blogger Pam Pennick, the author of The Water-Saving Garden, How to Grow a Gorgeous Garden with a Lot Less Water. Wasn't that fun? If you enjoyed today's show, please go out and support Pam. Go get this book. You will not regret it. I want to thank my team at Podfly Productions, David Myers, Ein Kadena, and David Gregerson. And just a reminder, I'll have all the information that Pam shared on the show today on my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. It's also the home of the Still Growing Podcast. You can find the show notes for every single episode on the website there. And don't forget, I'd love to see you in the Facebook group, the listener community for the show. It's the only place where I go to find winners for our giveaways, like the fabulous copy of Pam's book. So if you're interested in potentially winning that copy, get in the group, go to Facebook. You can search Still Growing Podcast Group to find our group, or you can go to my website at sixfootmama.com, and there's a link right in the menu to the Facebook group, and you can get there that way as well. So just click to join, even though it's a closed group, just request to join. And as soon as I verify you're not a robot or a spammer, I'll let you in the group. It's a great way to interact with other listeners of the show and guests of the show, like today's guest, Pam Pennick. She's in the group. You can ask her questions if you have anything that you want to know about the water-saving garden or some of the things that we talked about today. You can also interact with Joel Karsten of Strawbale Gardens or Deborah Madison of Vegetable Literacy or Anna Thomas of Vegan Vegetarian Omnivore to name just a few. So go ahead, check it out. I'd love to meet you in the Still Growing Podcast group on Facebook. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.